Jen. Surf on over to WAMU.org slash events. Hey, something to remember as we transition to, into February 2020. Leap years like this, one come every four years. And Groundhog Day, like today, is an annual event. But this day, 0202-2020, Palindrome Day, comes with once in a hundred lifetimes. Make it memorable, people. Well, that's it. That's all for me. And this is WAMU, Washington. In HD at 88.5 and at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City. And it's 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, also known as your refuge from football, from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and, well, I lied. We do have something for football fans tonight. Jack Benny taking Tony Curtis's role in the All-American, under the watchful eye of Tony Curtis. And a football figures in a murder on Michael Shane, private detective. But there is other stuff going on. It's Groundhog Day, and we get the lowdown on the holiday from Lum and Abner. African American History Month begins this weekend, and we usher it in with a double dose of Destination Freedom, the two-part saga of the liberator of Haiti, Henri Christophe. Pickpockets are on the loose in Dragnet, while on Gunsmoke, Matt and Chester are on the trail of a killer. Or are they? And our Miss Brooks checks in with a comedy that could only be done on the radio. So settle back, relax, and get into the world of radio by freeing your mind of all the cares and troubles that beset you last week. It's finally ended. And next week, it doesn't really begin till tomorrow. So take advantage of the lull and listen to an adventure we may never have played before on the big broadcast called The Johnson Payroll Matter. It comes from September 21st, 1958, CBS, AFRTS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Pat McCracken, Johnny, Universal Adjustment Bureau. Oh, hi, Pat. What's on your mind? At the moment, you. Huh? Johnny, you've been working too hard. Oh, this I've been convinced of for years, Pat, but I've never been able to convince anybody else, especially you. Okay, I'm convinced. What you need is a nice vacation, all expenses paid. Whoa, whoa. Southern California is very nice this time of I year. just came back from there. The beaches, the swimming, sun, golf, nightlife. Look, Pat, thanks a lot, but no thanks. Well, now, John. The last time you invited me to take one of your vacations, I got hit over the head, almost run down by a truck, and kicked around by a yeah. guy seven feet tall. Yeah, but this one's different, Johnny. It's a real simple job. Oh, they all are, according to you. All I want you to do is pick up something out on the coast and bring it back here. That's all. Yeah, what? A hundred thousand dollars. Oh. Oh. I'll be right over. Bob Bailey and the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Universal Adjustment Bureau, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Johnson payroll matter. 
Expense account item one, $1.25 cab fare from my apartment at the Office of Universal Adjustment Bureau in Pat McCracken. Well, a hundred thousand bucks made you prick up your ears, Johnny. <laughs> Sit down. Okay, Pat. What's the deal? You hear about the Johnson payroll robbery last week down in New York? I read about it, but there weren't too many details. They got a hundred thousand, and the payroll was insured by one of the companies we represent. How many in on the robbery, do you know? Oh, we're not sure. There were several. One of them was fatally wounded. Was he able to talk before he died? Yeah, just enough to tell us the plan was to split up after the robbery, meet in another city to divvy up the loot. Uh-huh. And you think it's out in California now? We also think one of the crooks may be trying to double-cross the others. Hiding out from them, maybe? That's the general idea. We got a call from Los Angeles this morning. Fellow wouldn't give his name. But he claimed he could give us a lead on the one who has the dough. For a price, of course. Oh. So you're to meet him in L.A. and find out what he knows, if anything. What do you figure his angle is, Pat? Oh, maybe several, Johnny, but I don't care. What I do care about is getting the money back. All right. How do I contact this man in Los Angeles? You don't. He'll contact you. At your hotel, the Nestor. The Nestor. Okay, Pat, I'm on my way. Oh, just one thing, Johnny. Yeah? Maybe it's a curtsy, maybe it hasn't. There will be others looking for that money, too. The other guys involved in the robbery? Yeah. Of course, if you can get there first... I'll try. Oh, and don't bother telling me to be sure to get back here in one piece. Hmm? That I'll really try to do. <laughs> Expense account item two, $187 even, air transportation and incidentals to Los Angeles. I've been told to stay at the Hotel Nestor, so I took a cab. That's item three, five fifty from the airport. It was just getting dark as my cab pulled up in front of the place. Before I could get out, somebody got in. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know this cab was occupied. Well, that's okay. Welcome aboard. Here, I'll get out. Oh, oh. It's okay. I've got you. I'm sorry, I lost my balance. I've got my heel. Uh, you may be sorry, but I'm not. I can't think of a better way to arrive in a strange city than with a beautiful girl in your arms. If you let go of me. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, if you insist. Oh, thanks. I'm sorry. Oh, wait a minute. You can have this gift as soon as I get my stuff out. Oh, that's all right. I'm in a hurry. I'll get another one. Goodbye. Oh, wait a second. I mean, after all... Oh, well... Yeah, that's the story of my life. The best ones always seem to get away. I went into the hotel lobby to register, but found a message waiting for me from the informant who had phoned to Pat. I was to drive to the little town of Corrado Beach down the coast and meet a man there first thing in the morning. There was a map showing me the way to a small pier where the meeting was to take place. Hmm. Looked like Los Angeles had suddenly got too hot for him. Expense account item four, $50 to rent a car. I left word where I'd be, drove to Corrado Beach, and checked in at a motel. Then early next morning, I went out to the little pier. It was a ramshackle affair with a couple of beat-up boats tied to it and an old character fumbling with the door of a little bait shack. I went over to him. Hi. Morning. Having trouble? Yeah, some kid's been monkeying with this lot. You want some bait? No, no, this is one trip I didn't come to fish. How is it, by the way? Fishing? Yeah, fine. Oh, just my luck. No, I'm supposed to meet somebody here. Oh, it must be that fellow out there. He was already there when I got here. Oh, where? Oh, you see that boat, the bottom side up on the pier near the end? You mean the man sitting beside it? Yeah. Got himself a fishing rod, looks like. Could be he wants some bait. 
I'll, uh, I'll walk out with you and see if you don't mind. Oh, not at all. So the fishing's been good, huh? What have they been catching? Oh, quite a few bass last couple of days. Off the pier? Yeah. There's some kelp beds in close. Brings men around here. Funny. Hmm? Your friend there, you don't see anything. Hey. Sleep, I guess. Hey, watch out. He's living. Riley. But. Hmm. Hey, mister. Mister, he, he isn't sleeping. That's right. He's dead. And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Johnson Payroll Matter. I'd flown 3,000 miles to meet a man only to find him dead at the end of a rickety little pier at Corrado Beach, a knife between his ribs. I searched him while the old fellow at the bait shack went to call the police. But I didn't find a thing on him to help me. No identification even. Later, talking to the police, well, they didn't have any line on him either. My only lead on the payroll robbery was dead. I waited around the motel most of the day, hoping the police could turn up something on the dead man, but it was no soap. Item five, two dollars for drinks in the town's only bar while I tried to figure out my next move. And my next move was to the phone booth in the corner to call Pat McCracken back in Hartford. Collect. Oh, tough luck, Johnny. But are you sure the dead man is our informant? There was no identification on him, but he was right where he told me he'd be in the message he left for me in L.A. Uh, probably not much doubt about it, then. Oh, incidentally, I sent some mug shots out to you. Some men yeah. might have been involved in the Johnson payroll job. Sent an airmail special. Yeah, I got them about an hour ago. We're not sure if any of them are the ones or not, and we don't have any line at all on the leader of the gang. Well, what's your next move, Jim? Uh, search me. Right now, I'm right in the middle of nowhere. I guess I... Hey, wait a minute. What's the matter? Maybe I'm not out of leads after all. What do you mean? Pat, I'll call you later. <laughs> What pulled me off that phone in a hurry was a glimpse of somebody over near one end of the bar. I slid out of the booth and went over. Well, hi. What? Imagine meeting you here. I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. You're the girl who got into my cab in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm afraid you're confusing me with somebody else. I'm sorry. Yeah, I have no, to go. No, no, just a minute. I'm beginning to think it wasn't just coincidence you got into my cab. Maybe we'd better have a little talk. Please, go of my arm. You've made a mistake, and there's nothing to talk about. She's annoying you, lady. Now, look, bartender, I'm just trying yes, to find... Yes, he is annoying me. Take your hands off her, buddy. Now, look, Joe. I mean it, and my name ain't Joe. I got you outweighed by about 40 pounds, buddy. You don't understand. Just let go of her, and we'll talk it over. I... Okay, okay. Thank you. Well, just what is it I don't understand, buddy? Skip it. Buddy. So she got away from me. I grabbed my top coat off a hook and stepped outside the bar. It was damp and foggy out there. I put on the coat and started looking around for her, but it was too late. She was just plain gone. Then walking along with my hands in my coat pockets, I realized there was something in one. A key to a motel room. But not mine. Then I remembered I'd had the coat beside me in the taxi when the girl climbed in back in Los Angeles. Yeah, she could have slipped it in the coat pocket then. Why? 
Now, that's what I wanted to find out. I looked up the motel. It was about a mile down the highway from mine, room seven. Yeah, the key fit all right. Then as I opened the door, I realized I had company right behind me. Freeze, Dollar. Huh? Who are you? Never mind. Inside. Move. Okay. Get that blind down. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. Your face looks familiar. Yeah, those mug shots McCracken sent me. You must be... Slattery. Right, boy. One of the guys they suspect of pulling the Johnson payroll job. Too bright for your own good dollar. You must be the one who killed the man out on the pier. The man who was going to tell me where the payroll door is. That's a nice stall, dollar, but it won't work. What do you mean, Slattery? Blake killed him and you know it. Yeah? Who is Blake? You want to play it coy, huh, dollar? Okay, we'll do it your way. Blake's got the payroll door and you're working with him. Just how do you figure that? Blake's girlfriend climbed in your taxi in Los Angeles. I figure she slipped you the key to this room. Hey, look, you got a few things all twisted. Shut up and stand still. This gun has a habit of going off sometimes. Okay. So where's the dough? Take it or leave it, Slattery, I don't know. Well, it better be in this room. Yeah? And if it isn't? You guess. I don't think I need more than one. If it isn't here, I'm not leaving. That the idea? Oh, you leave, all right. It's just that you won't be walking out of here. And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Johnson Payroll Matter. Look, Slatter, you've torn this motel room completely apart. Obviously, that payroll money isn't here. That's right, Teller. So now you're going to tell me where it is. Oh, brother, you take a lot of convincing. I told you I don't know. So why don't you put that gun away and listen? You're the one who takes the convincing, Dollar, so I start convincing. Oh, that's not going to do you any good. No? Well, for sure it's not going to do you any good, so... Now, wait a minute, look. Look, I'll give you the whole story. And I'm supposed to believe it, huh? Staring down that gun barrel, I'm not about to lie... Let's have it. All right. A guy called us from Los Angeles, said he could give us a lead on who had the dough from the Johnson payroll job. It was Hollis. He was hoping you'd lead him to it. Hollis? Yeah, yeah, the guy you found out in the pier dead. And you said a man named Blake killed him. You know Blake killed him. You know Blake engineered the hold up and then ran out on Hollis and me. Do I? Sure, because you're in with him. I seen his girl get in your cab in Los Angeles. Okay, so she got in my cab, but I didn't know her. I'd never seen her before. She slipped you the key to this motel room, didn't she? Yeah, now I think I know why. She was trying to sidetrack us. Lead us to think the dough was here so it would take the pressure off Blake and her. That part of your story I don't buy, Dollar. I think you know where that dough is and I want it. Now look. Talk. If you think I'm going to take any more of this. This gun says that's exactly what you're going to do until you decide to talk. I roll with this next one. And let my eyes droop and my knees sag. He reached out to steady me, and I gave my left foot in the stomach to flatten By the time he got to his feet, I was out the door. I dove behind some bushes down the road, and I waited. He pounded right on past me, gun in hand. 
I waited until he was out of sight, then doubled back to my car. Apparently, Slattery didn't know Blake's girl was around here somewhere. One thing was sure, I had to find her, but fast. There were only three motels in town. The one I was staying at, the one where Slattery had been playing patty cake on my jaw, and a third off the highway near the beach. I drove to that one and checked the register. It showed a minor grant in number eight. Sorry, we're going to have that talk right now. I tell you, you've made a mistake about me. Oh, come on. Drop the egg, Myrna. I know you're Blake's girlfriend, but you slipped that motel key in my coat pocket in L.A. to get me off the trail of the Johnson payroll money. The, the what? I also know that Blake masterminded the robbery and double-crossed his buddy, held out on him. Oh, I... I guess I knew it must be something like that. What are you talking about? Mr. Dollar, I... I haven't known Fred Blake very long. A month, maybe. I didn't know what he did for a living, and I didn't ask him. Two days ago, he said he was in trouble and needed my help. He wanted me to slip that key into your coat pocket in the taxi in Los Angeles. To take Slattery off his trail. Then he told me to meet him here at the beach. When I saw you in the bar a while ago, I got panicky. I didn't know what to do. But that's all I know about it. Mr. Dollar, I didn't know Blake was a criminal. Honestly, I didn't. Yeah, now, will you help me find him? Yes. I will, Mr. Dollar. If I can. The trouble is, right now, I don't know where he is any more than you do. Well, it be, folks. Hey, wait a minute, buddy. Ain't you the one that was molesting this young lady an hour ago? Oh, Tarzan, buddy, my molesting days are over. Oh, it's all right, bartender. I'm sorry I caused you the trouble. No trouble, ma'am. Just glad it turned out all right. Things uh, happen fast here at the beach, I guess. I don't suppose you've ever heard of a guy named Fred Blake, have you? Not that I remember. You looking for him? Yeah. What's he look like? Medium height, uh, dark hair, and brown eyes. Yeah. Regular features. Uh, that description would fit half the guys that come in here. Sure. Fishermen, salesmen, vacation. Only that kind don't come in here anymore. Salesmen? No, fishermen. I thought the fishing was good here. Been no fishing around here for months. Huh? A fellow told me they were getting a lot of bass right off the pier. <laughs> he was pulling your leg, buddy. There's a chemical plant nearby. A lot of stuff got dumped into the water by accident a few months ago. The fish haven't been back since. Wait a minute. Sure, right under my nose all the time. What do you mean, Johnny? Martin, I'll see you later. I got in my car and headed for the pier. As I turned off the highway, I could see a car a couple of hundred yards back following me with its lights off. But I couldn't stop now. I parked near the pier and headed for the bait shack. The windows were still boarded over, but I could see a crack of light between the boards. I eased over to the shack. Oh, no. I flattened against the wall as the door came open and Blake came out with a gun. I hacked it out of his hand. All right, hold it, hold it, Blake. Well, the fisherman's friend, huh? Look, you killed that guy on the end of the pier just before I showed up this morning. You didn't have time to leave, so you're covered by making like you worked here. Then it occurred to you this was a pretty good hideout until Slattery got off your trail. Look, look, maybe we can make a deal. Oh, we're going to. You turn the stolen money over to me, and I turn you over to the police. Drop your gun, Dolly. Huh? Drop it. Okay, Slattery. <laughs> Hello, Blake. 
Glad to see me. Look, Slattery, I, I wasn't trying to cross you. I, I was going to get in touch with you when things quieted down. <laughs> sure you were. Let's have the dough. Uh, all right, it, it's in the shack. Blake half turned, and I saw his hand slide into his coat, a second gun. He whipped it out, but Slattery had seen it, too. He got Blake, but his eyes were off me for a lucky second. I checked Blake. He was still alive. Yeah, they'd both keep for a long time. Item six, $174 even, air transportation and incidentals back home. Expense account total, $526.50. Remarks? The payroll money is back where it belongs. Slattery and Blake are back where they belong, with Blake facing a murder rap to boot. Funny, I probably wouldn't have nailed him if he hadn't told me that phony story about the fish biting near the pier. Teaches me a lesson, Pat. I'm not going to tell any more fish stories. They can kill you. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Here's our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a pair of common, ordinary glasses solve a case for us. The gruesome spectacle matter. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Today's story was written by Robert Stanley. Heard in our cast were Virginia Gregg, Lawrence Dobkin, Horace Lewis, Shepard Menken, and Frank Gerstel. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. I gotta admit, I love the way the writers managed to get a beautiful woman and fishing into nearly every episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. As they did in that one, the Johnson payroll matter from two days before the autumnal equinox in 1958. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Well, it's Groundhog Day, which, I'm sorry, doesn't really tell me a thing about how much longer winter's gonna last. But it does give us an excuse to play a Lum and Abner episode that'll explain the whole occasion to you. And raise an interesting question. You won't hear Lum's voice after the introduction to the show because Chester Locke is otherwise engaged playing the role of Cedric, the hapless blacksmith's son and the bane of Abner, played as usual by Nora Scoff. You'll hear them refer to President Franklin Roosevelt's having changed the date of Thanksgiving in 1939. That resulted in two Thanksgivings that year. From January 31st, 1945, and the NBC Blue Network, it's Lum and Abner. Uh, Granny's Abner, I believe that's our ring. I know, Lum, I believe you're right. 
Now, see. Hello, John M. Downstore. This is Lovin Abner. And now let's see what's going on down in Pine Ridge. Well, there is little change in the situation currently facing the old fellows. And as we look in on the little community today, we find Abner in the Jotham Down store and library having a fairly difficult time trying to concentrate on his worries because of Cedric's insistent demands for aid in doing his schoolwork. Listen. Cedric, how many times do I have to tell you I can't help you write no theme for school today? I've got too many other things on my mind to think about. Trouble in the home, trouble at the store, trouble, trouble everywhere. Not a thought to think. Yes, Mom, but I, I sure need help, Bad. This is a hard theme I've got to write this time, Mr. Abner. Well, I'd love to help you, Cedric, but I just can't do it today. I, I'd do it by myself, but it's got me whipped, I think. Just too doggone tough for a boy my size. Yeah, well, I'm sorry for Cedric, but I don't think it's right no way for me to be helping you with your schoolwork. Well, I won't tell on you. Well, if you'll help me with this, and I promise I won't bother you no more. Oh, my. Well, all right, all right. I don't know where I'll be able to concentrate on anything today or not, Cedric, but go ahead. What's your subject this time? Mom. What are you supposed to write your theme about, Cedric? Oh, well, it, it's a hardened. It's about Groundhog's Day. Groundhog's Day? Yes, Mom. Uh, well, that's the day after tomorrow, on February the 2nd. But I'm supposed to hand it in before that. Oh, me, is it that time of year already, February? Yes, Mom. Huh. How the weeks do fly past long at all. Well, anyways, that's what I'm supposed to write about. Here's the topic Miss Platt gave me. Wrote it out for me on this piece of paper here. It's scribbling. Oh, she writes pretty, I think. Oh, I was looking at it upside down. Yeah, it does look better yeah. that way, Cedric. Yeah. Groundhog's Day, what it is and what it means. Well, for the land's sake, Cedric, you don't call that a hard subject, do you? Yes, Mom, I sure do. <laughs> That's plum easy. Just as easy as falling off a log. Well, uh, what uh, seems so hard about it to you, Cedric? Well, there's uh, two main questions that seem to bother me the most. All right. What are they? Well, uh, they're both about Groundhog's Day. Well, natural, natural. Uh, one of them is, what is it? And the other one is, what does it mean? Well, all me, that's a whole subject of your theme, Cedric. Yes, Mom. Now, that, that's the part that seems to stump me the most. Uh, if, if I could once get over that hurdle, I believe I could get the rest of it good. Well, you ought to be able to get the whole thing plumb easy, Cedric. That's the simplest one subject I ever heard. Your teacher, Miss Platt, ought to be ashamed of herself for giving you such a little old topics as that to write on. Yes, Mom, she ought to. Any little youngin' in the fourth reader could write that, Cedric. Well, that's what I'm in, the fourth reader. Oh, yeah, that is right, ain't it? Yes, Mom. Well, I still think she oughtn't to give you such easy stuff to do, though. No, Mom, I I'm the only kid in the fourth reader that's got a social security number. Yeah, I know that, Cedric. The only one. Yeah, yeah. Just me. Yeah, well, here now, here now, let's get this theme of yours old, because I've got other things I want. Now, listen close now, Cedric. Look at me. Don't uh, be staring out the window. Just take a half a second if you'll consult me. pitching horseshoes over there with the blacksmith. Well, shop. you listen to me now. Dog is such simple junk as they hand out in the schools nowadays. Well, now, here it is, Cedric. Ever February the 2nd, the groundhog comes out of his hole. And if he sees his shatter, why, he goes back in. 
That means we're going to have six more weeks of winter. If you don't see a shatter, why, that means that winter's practical over. And that's all they are to it. Yes, Ma. Ain't nothing to it at all. <laughs> no, Ma. Well, get busy now. Write that down. Yes, Ma. G- can I ask you just one little question about it first? Oh, all right. Go ahead. Well, uh, you, you said he always comes out on February the 2nd, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, how does a groundhog know when it's February the 2nd, though? <laughs> Why, he just... Huh. Uh, how, how, do you, how does he know when that comes? Well, see, the way that works, Cedric, uh, he... Uh, well, the groundhog... He... Huh. wonder how he does know that. Uh, I, I've been studying on that. I, I can't figure it out. No, but I never had thought of that before. That is sort of cute. <laughs> well, it sure is. Yeah. I, I'm the only kid in the fourth reader that's got a social security number, but I, I can't get that. Huh. Now, there's this little groundhog... Sitting there in the ground all winter long. It's dark down in there. Ain't got no electric lights. Not even a lantern. But somehow or other, that little rascal knows when it's February the 2nd. Hmm. That's just what I said, Mr. Ebert. Hmm. Oh, because he must find that out some way. Yeah. You don't reckon he's got a little calendar down there in his cave, do you? Calendar? Yes, ma'am. Why, of course not. Cedric, <laughs> that's silly. <laughs> For one thing, I doubt if he'd have room down there for a calendar. No, Ma. He might dig the hole a little bigger, though. Well, yeah, he could do that, I reckon. But now, where in the world would a groundhog ever get a calendar, Cedric? Well, we always get our calendars either from Mr. Huddleston's store or over here at your place. Sometimes both. Yeah, but you ain't a groundhog, though, Cedric. No, Mom. I'm, I'm way younger too big for Why, well, of course, yeah. You don't even look like one. Hardly. Oh, no, I've got a, so- a social security number, and I, I don't guess groundhogs would have one of them, would they? Oh, no. No, you ain't one of them, I know, Cedric, so just stop worrying about it. Now, you ain't a groundhog. I'll vouch for that. Thank you. You're welcome. You don't reckon he, he, he's getting a calendar summers then, huh? Why, of course not, Cedric. He might be sneaking one out somewhere. Well, no, we just give out our calendars to customers. I know good and well we ain't got no groundhogs trading with us. No, Mom, I never did see none trading. Don't reckon they send somebody else in to get it firm. No, no, Wait outside. Well, well, even if the groundhog did get a hold of a calendar summers, he couldn't read it no way, Cedric. They can't read. Well, sir, that, that thought run through my cranium, too. Let me think now. Of course, I reckon maybe now the, the groundhog's papa might read that calendar and then tell him when it gets to be February the 2nd. Or, no. <laughs> What's the matter? <laughs> None of them can read. <laughs> I, I never knowed one that could read. Eh, see now, now, just hold your horses here, Cedric. There's got to be a way that that little rascal finds that out. February the 2nd. Well, I asked Tom Foster this morning about this, and he said that the groundhog don't actually know when February the 2nd gets here. He don't. No, Mom. Well, we told then, Cedric, how come that the groundhog knows enough to come out of his hole on that day, then? Well, Mr. Tom said that the groundhog waits till the 13th of February and then counts back 11 days, and, and then that's the second. Well, now, yeah, I reckon he could do that. Uh, wait a minute, that wouldn't work. Cedric, that Tom was just joshing you. He was. <laughs> well, I sort of thought he was, the way he said that. <laughs> and he kept laughing and slapping his legs. Why, oh, sure. That Tom, he's always bannering somebody, joshing them. <laughs> you can't put no dependence in what he says. No, <laughs> <Barman>. <laughs> uh, I asked Mama this same question, and she said she, she weren't sure, but she figured the groundhog just got in the habit of coming out on that day. Well, yes, you but can do that. How in the world did he 
get started in the first place. That's what I want to know. How did he get into the habit? How come he always hits it right on the exact second of February? If it's just a habit, why, he'd surely miss it sometimes. Come out on the first or the third or maybe even the tenth. No, I don't believe that's explains it at all, Cedric. Well, maybe he does miss it sometimes. Well, he can't. It's right there on the calendar. Oh, it says right. right there what day he comes out, Cedric. And when something's once on the calendar, why, well, then it's got to stay right there. It can't be changed around. Well, they change Thanksgiving Day. Well, but once when... Oh, good way to touch that's right, ain't it? Yes, Mom. Huh. Wonder if the president has anything to do with this. Don't reckon he goes around and tells all the groundhogs when it's February. Er, oh, no, of course not. That couldn't be, no. Oh, Miss President, Mike, she she gets around a lot. No, Cedric, no, 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 no. Well, them groundhogs has got to find out somewhere, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they sure do, all right. There ain't no doubt about that. They got to find out or they wouldn't know how to come out on the second day of February, but... Now, how they do it is a mystery to me. A mystery. M-I-S-T-R-E-Z mysteries to me. Yes, ma'am. It's one of them things to me, too. I hear they've been doing this for years and years now, and nobody's ever found that out. How do them little varmints know what they did? I don't know. It's got me puzzled. Doggy, I'd hate to have somebody like that around. Somebody that knows something that you don't know. Sit there at that smart aleck look on her face and not say nothing. Getting so I hate and despise them little critters, Cedric. Have you had some groundhogs sitting around in here? Why, they be... Or, well, no, but if they come in, I'm going to get shut up awful fast, I know that. Oh, well, before you do, ask them about that February the 2nd business. i got to know that before tomorrow. Well, what's the use in asking them? They can't talk. And even if they could, they wouldn't tell you. Not them little smart aleck barmage. Another thing, how do they know they're supposed to go back in if they see their shatters? How do they know that? I don't think I know that, Anthony. No, of course not. You don't know it. I don't know. I don't get away with me. Let me get on that telephone. I've got a little call I want to make here. Well, who are you calling up, Mr. Grandpap? Grandpap? Oh, Lord, me. Grandpap don't even know when it's February the 2nd itself. Well, who is it then? Huh? I- I've got to get this theme in by tomorrow. I- I've got a social security card. But te- don't yeah, help wait, me out. Take not me in this cash up a minute. Be quiet. Cedric, cash up. Up. I can't hear. Hello? Is this Miss Platt? I'm going to try to catch one this year. Uh, this is Abner Peabody. I believe it is. I don't know when February the 2nd. Yes, Mom. As a tax-paying citizen of Pine Ridge, I demand that you give our scholars easier lessons to do over there. Why, some of that stuff you're handing out there, a grown adult of a man couldn't get it. And if things ain't changed over there, I'm going to stop paying taxes and what's more... A good question from Cedric and Abner on Lum and Abner just before Groundhog Day in 1945. Actually, it turns out that the Groundhog Club of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, puts the groundhog in a hole the night before and then takes him out of the hole at dawn. That's how the groundhog knows when to... Never mind. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Next, we've got an Our Miss Brooks episode. I'm always enthusiastic about that show, but I'm especially eager to share this one with you. As in any good sitcom, it uses 
the usual character relationships, including Connie's romantic pursuit of the reluctant Mr. Boynton. But this particular story is also a great example of radio comedy at its best, because it couldn't have succeeded in any other medium. It depends entirely on your ability to conjure up the images in your head. And I also love that there's a reference to Daniel Defoe's novel, Maul Flanders. From January 10th, 1954, and CBS, it's Our Miss Brooks. Now it's Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Harden. Frequently in the past, when her principal engaged in a project, he expected the members of his faculty to follow suit. So it was no surprise to Armis Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High, when two weeks ago, Mr. Conklin took up an old hobby of his, and then ordered his teachers to pursue a hobby of their own. At first, she was even quite happy when she was ordered to pursue a hobby. In fact, right up until Mr. Conklin informed me that Mr. Boynton wasn't quite what he had in mind. But it was Mr. Conklin's hobby, rather than mine, that caused most of the difficulty this past week. His avocation was making lifelike figures out of wax, which he then presented to his teachers and insisted that we display them prominently in our homes. Actually, his wax figures of animals were exceptionally good, and the leopard he gave me last Wednesday was extremely lifelike. Thursday morning, when my landlady saw it for the first time, her reaction was immediate. Mrs. Davis, Mrs. Davis, come out of the closet, dear. It's not a lie. Not a lie, you're... You're sure it isn't, Connie? Of course I'm sure. Well, all right, then. This leopard is just another of Mr. Conklin's wax figures. Although I will admit they're quite realistic. They certainly are. I don't know what we can do about Mr. Conklin's hobby, but in a way, it has had its good effect. How, dear? Well, it's forced many of the teachers to take up hobbies when they'd never had one until now. For instance, you've never seen me doing any knitting before. Look what I've accomplished in the last few weeks. Yes, I was noticing those things on the sideboard before you came in this morning. Did you see the things I knitted for Mr. Boynton? Oh, I know he'll be delighted with that. Uh, with that, uh... It's a bathing suit. <laughs> of course, dear. I should have known it was a bathing suit as soon as I saw the turtleneck. Well, anyway, I know Mr. Boynton will be pleased with it when I give it to him at dinner. Well, as soon as I get to school, I'll ask him if... Oh, that's probably Walter to pick me up. Come on in, Walter. The door's open. I'd better see what I've got left in the kitchen for him. And you know how that boy eats. Uh, I'll be back in a minute. Hello, Walter. Why, Mr. Boynton. Oh, good morning, Miss Brooks. I... Yay! Mr. Boynton. <laughs> Mr. Boynton, come out of the closet this minute. <laughs> oh, it's the leopard. He's not alive, Mr. Boynton. He, uh, he's not? You're sure? Oh, <laughs> I get it now. It's another of Mr. Conklin's wax figures. Gosh, they certainly are realistic. I'll bet you'll never guess what he gave me for my place, Miss Brooks. A wolf. Well, are you learning anything? Uh, why did you come by this morning, Mr. Boynton? Well, Walter called me a little while ago and said something went wrong with his car, so I decided I'd pick you up instead. Oh, I'm glad you did. 
And since you're here, I might as well give you the present I knitted for you. <laughs> I was originally going to give it to you tonight at dinner. Uh, here you are, Mr. Boynton. Shows what you can create when you take up a new hobby, doesn't it? Uh, you knitted this for me? Cared to jump back into the closet? Oh, no, no, it's, uh, it's beautiful. Mm. Oh, beautiful. It, uh, uh, it'll make a wonderful cover for my rabbit cage. <laughs> it's a bathing suit. A bathing suit? With a turtle neck? Well, if you can't use it, just hand it to the nearest turtle. <laughs> oh, I'll use it. And since you've given me your gift already, I might as well give you the things I made for you. I suppose you've been wondering what's in the shoebox I've been carrying. No, I just figured it was your lunch. It's the latest product of my wood carving hobby. Go ahead and open it. Oh. <laughs> Why, Mr. Boynton, they're lovely. They're two of the most beautifully carved ashtrays I've ever seen. But they're shoes, Miss Brooks. <laughs> wooden shoes. Wooden shoes? Oh. I guess what fooled me was you forgot the wooden laces. Well, they just slip on. Uh, women in Holland wear them all the time. Uh, go ahead, see how they fit. All right. First, I have to get my own shoes off. There. Oh, say, this wooden shoe slips on nice and easy. Good. Uh, is it the right size? Oh, yes. Both feet fit into it perfectly. <laughs> well, uh, they may seem a little loose on your feet at first, but you'll find they're very comfortable around the house. Uh, just try walking in them. All righty. Well, let's go, Mr. Boynton. I've got to see Mr. Conklin the first thing this morning. Well, you're not going to wear those shoes to school, are you, Miss Brooks? You said the women in Holland wear them all the time, didn't you? Oh, yes, but what's that got to do with you? Well, at least today I'm dressed for the part when I get in Dutch with Mr. Conklin. <laughs> flattering you. This wax figure you've made of yourself is amazingly lifelike. Why, if I didn't know you were sitting behind that desk, I'd swear you were the wax figure standing beside it. You do believe me, don't you? I ought to, since the wax figure standing beside it happens to be me. <laughs> what? Oh, this is wonderful. This figure behind the desk could fool anybody. Daddy, may I say you're a genius? Over and over again. <laughs> uh, I am rather facile with wax, aren't I? Oh, I should say you are. Oh, yes, yes. My only regret is that there isn't enough room for me to do my modeling at home. It isn't easy to flaunt school rules night after night working in the gymnasium. But I suppose for a true artist, rules are sometimes made to be broken. Oh, I'm so glad you feel that way about rules, Daddy. Then could I skip homework and go out with Walter tonight? And just when did you join the club, Miss Picasso? <laughs> you most certainly cannot. Even if you had no homework, you know perfectly well Denton has a job assisting me evening. <laughs> well, Harriet, I know you have a class, so if you don't mind, kindly get... Goodness, what's that? It sounds like the Martians have finally landed. Well, I wasn't far wrong. <laughs> Just a moment, please. 
Now, if you'll excuse me, Harriet, I'm about to make a little experiment to find out just how lifelike that wax figure behind my desk really is. When, Daddy? When I'm hidden behind that door and you are out of this office. Through my inner office, please. What? Oh, all right. Now to get behind my office door before Miss Brooks comes in. Uh, here we are. Come in, Miss Brooks. Oh, good morning, Mr. Carlson. Uh, sir, I have a big favor to ask you, an enormous favor. Now, please don't say anything until you've heard me out. It's about tonight. I know I'm supposed to go over some reports with you at your house, but when I agreed to do it, I forgot that tonight Mr. Boynton and I were celebrating his sixth anniversary at Madison. So would it be all right if I went to your house tomorrow night, would it? Hmm? Would it? Mr. Conklin, I just asked you not to say anything until you'd heard me out. Not to never speak again. <laughs> I've never seen you this quiet before. Is your head bothering you? It's coming off. <laughs> if there's anything I can do to help, I'd be... It's coming off! Uh, don't worry. We can always weld it back on. <laughs> what are you doing in back of me when you're in front of me? Oh, oh, I see it now. One of you is made of wax. <laughs> Oh, you certainly gave me an awful start, sir. Well, I'm sorry if I upset you, Miss Brooks, but the figure is rather lifelike, isn't it? Well, truly, sir, it's practically impossible to tell the difference between you and the dummy. <laughs> that is, there's a remarkable resemblance. Now, about the favor I was going to ask of you... I've already heard you ask it, Miss Brooks, and since I intend working on my wax figures here at school tonight... You may have the evening off. Oh, thank you, Mr. Conklin, thank you. Honestly, you've made me so happy, sir, I could kiss you. If you must, try the wax, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> but in return for this favor of mine, I have a small favor to ask of you. Will you supervise this office during your lunch hour, since I have to go downtown to purchase more wax for my figure? Oh, yes, sir, gladly. Good, good. Well, if you don't need me anymore, I'll be on my way to class. Uh, wh one moment, please, Mal Flanders. <laughs> Just where did you get those wooden shoes? Mr. Boynton made them for me, sir. Wood carving is his hobby. Would you come a little closer, Miss Brooks? Yes, sir. <clears throat> My, it's lucky this building is earthquake-proof. <laughs> oh, the wood carving on these shoes is excellent, simply excellent. I've been searching for someone to assist me in my work. And Boynton might be just the man. Yes, I think he may do. Mr. Boynton, your assistant? Yes, he'll start working with me tonight on my historical figures. Oh, but, sir, I told you we're celebrating an anniversary tonight. He's supposed to have dinner with me. Miss Brooks, I've made up my mind. Tonight, Mr. Boynton starts with Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette? Uh, Mr. Conklin, I think I may have an idea that will solve both our problems. What's that, Miss Brooks? You take Marie Antoinette and we'll make it a double date. Well, at noon that day, while the real Mr. Conklin was downtown, I was sitting in front of our principal's desk, keeping an eye on his office, while the wax figure of Mr. Conklin sat in the chair opposite, keeping his eye on me. Suddenly, the door opened. Hi, Miss Brooks. Hello, Mr. Conklin. Oh, hello, Walter. Mr. Conklin, I have a big favor to ask you, but please don't say anything until you've heard what it is, okay? Don't worry, he won't. Well, sir, it's about tonight. I've been planning a big date with a certain member of your family for a week now, so could I please be excused tonight? 
After all, sir, I've stood guard outside the gym for five straight nights while you worked inside. So could I please have tonight off? Could I, hmm? Uh-huh. Could I? Mr. Conklin, I just asked you not to speak until I finished, not to never speak again. Now, Mr. Conklin, do you mean to say you forced this poor boy to stand out in the cold for five nights? Why, I've never heard of anything so heartless, so cruel and inhuman. Now, stop sitting there like a wax dummy and answer me. Yo, holy cow, please, Mr. Conklin, please, sir, you must forgive her. Oh, she's just a poor, hungry, overworked teacher who's finally snapped her cap. <laughs> she apologize, Mr. Conklin, I know she will. Only think of the many long, faithful years of service behind her and the pitifully few short years ahead of her. Oh, spare her, spare her, I beg of you. We kids need her, sir. She's like a mother to us. You'd do even better with grandmother. <laughs> Walter, you can relax. You're only talking to a wax dummy. A wax dummy? That's not the real Mr. Conklin? Of course not. You're sure? Certainly. Now get this marble hat. I'm taking all that heart take from you. I'm all through that one under sea. From now on, Harriet goes out with me every night of the week. And if you give me any more lip as to what time I gotta bring her home, I'll bounce one off your pointed marble head. <laughs> Boy, I had no idea Christmas would come again so soon. afraid that rings in the new year. Walter, please don't fool with that wax figure. It's fragile. <coughs> hello, Wax Museum. Uh, Madison High School. Mr. <laughs> speaking. Oh, hello, Miss Brooks. This is Mr. Stone. Could I speak to Mr. Conklin, please? He isn't here right now, sir. Well, tell Mr. Conklin I passed by the school last night and I saw a light burning in the gymnasium. Now, Mr. Conklin knows how strict we are about using school facilities after hours. You just tell Mr. Conklin I'm coming over tonight to find out for myself... Who is using the gymnasium after school hours? I'll give Mr. Conklin your message as soon as I see him, Mr. Stone. Very well. Goodbye. Goodbye, sir. You're going to give Mr. Conklin what message, Miss Brooks? That Mr. Stone's coming over tonight to investigate the light in the gymnasium. But, Miss Brooks, why do that? If Mr. Stone discovers Mr. Conklin here tonight, he'll make him quit his hobby, thus releasing Mr. Boynton and me for active duty on other battlefields. I'm getting to feel more like no man's land every day. Walter, I told Mr. Stone I'd give Mr. Conklin the message when I saw him, and that's exactly what I intend to do. You do? Yes, but I didn't say which, Mr. Conklin. Okay, Waxy, open up your ears. Almost nine o'clock, Mr. Conklin. I have a date tonight. Uh, perhaps we should come back to these figures tomorrow night. Uh, no, no, I, I can't stop, Boynton. I must work. I guess I've got wax in my blood. <laughs> where, oh, where did I get this heaven-sent talent? Did Julius Caesar ever look more dominating? And look at my Napoleon, Boynton. Did you ever see such a Napoleon? Whenever I look at it, I want to follow the man into battle. Well, it, it, it's rather good, sir. Thank you. <laughs> what do you think of this wax figure of Miss Brooks? I'll tell the truth, Boynton. I respect honest criticism. Well, uh, personally, I, I don't think the arms are quite right because... Boynton, when I want your opinion, I'll ask for it. <laughs> and what, pray, Mr. Boynton, do you find wrong with Miss Brooks' arms? 
Well, sir, I speak as one who's spent countless evenings in Miss Brooks' company. Boynton, I am in no mood to hear your true confession. <laughs> exactly how would you have treated the arm? Well, a little fuller. Fiddle-faddle. Oh, Mr. Conklin, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. All I really meant was... Quiet, quiet, quiet. I hear footsteps. There's a couple of people coming, and I think one of them is Mr. Stone. Mr. Stone? Good heavens, we've been ambushed. <laughs> what are we going to do, sir? There's no way out. They're coming toward us through the only open door. Boys, and stop making this sound like the ninth episode of The Perils of Pauline. Now, we must be calm. That's it. Calm. Calm. And think. Think. I've got it. Listen, you hide in the workshop. Yes, sir. Yeah, but what about us, sir? There's no alternative, Boynton. Freeze. Freeze? Yes. If we remain absolutely motionless beside these wax figures, Mr. Stone could never tell us apart. Now, put out the light, Boynton. Sit over there between Marie Antoinette and Josephine. Uh, between Marie Antoinette and Josephine. Oh, Boynton, relax. If Marie Antoinette makes a move toward you, I personally will see that she's guillotined again. As he approached the gymnasium from the outside, Mr. Stone was surprised at something he saw. Uh, Miss Brooks, didn't the light just go out in the gymnasium? Oh, uh, I'm not sure, Mr. Stone. Hmm. I'm glad I bumped into you. We can investigate this mystery together. Ah, I'll switch on the light. Well, for heaven's sakes, where did they go? Where did who go, Miss Brooks? Uh, whoever was here, I mean. My, these must be the wax figures Mr. Conklin's been working on. <laughs> They're amazingly lifelike, aren't they? Well, the Napoleon and the Caesar are, but that new one of Mr. Conklin wouldn't fool anyone. No living man ever looked like that. <laughs> that would be like Osgood placing his figure between Napoleon and Caesar. He does seem to give them an inferiority complex, doesn't he? And that one sitting over there between Marie Antoinette and Josephine, I believe, is Mr. Boynton, huh? Hmm. Very good. Good. He's gorgeous. <laughs> it is good, isn't it, sir? But this figure of Conklin needs the most work. For one thing, the, the eyes are wrong. They're too close together. <laughs> true, sir. And they lack that certain weasel-like quality. Oh, yes, they're not right, sir. And somehow there's something wrong with those jaws. Oh, the jaws are all wrong. Mr. Conklin has the heavy, beefy jowls of a baby rhinoceros. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Brooks, uh, where does Mr. Conklin keep his art supplies? Oh, in that little workshop over there. You see it, sir? Why do you ask? Uh, frankly, I think I can improve this Conklin figure myself. <laughs> Just by adding a little paint here, a dash of hot wax there, and... Moving that left eye over about two inches. <laughs> what was that, Miss Brooks? What was what? Well, I thought I... Oh, never mind. I'll be right back with the material. Hmm. Maybe I could move that eye over while... No one is moving my left eye over two inches. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Miss Brooks, it is indeed I. So my eyes lack that certain weasel-like quality. Oh, 
no, sir. They're very weasel-like. I have the heavy, beefy jowls of a baby rhinoceros, do I? Oh, that was all in fun, sir. No living man could look like I do. Oh, it should have been no living woman could hold the job I'm losing. (laughs) Miss Brooks. Well, I'm alive, too, Miss Brooks. Want to bet? <laughs> Miss Brooks, this is no time for meaningless talk. I want you to get Mr. Stone out of here as soon as possible. But, sir, Mr. Stone insists on doing you over. Get rid of him, Miss Brooks, or come tomorrow morning, a certain teacher may find herself pounding a beat in some kindergarten. Well, all right, sir, I'll try. See that you do, because... <gasps> here he comes. Hey, it's amazing, Miss Brooks. Mr. Coughlin's got wax figures all over the place. There's even one of Walter Denton in the workshop. Well, now to get to work on Osgood. Uh, Mr. Stone, don't you think it's rather late? Oh, nonsense, Miss Brooks. I haven't had so much fun in ages. Now, first, a touch of red paint on Mr. Coughlin's cheeks. Ah. (laughs) Notice how it brings out the eyes, Miss Brooks. Yes, they do look like they're about to pop, don't they? Now we build up that chin with a little hot wax. So. (laughs) And now the coup de grace. Mr. Stone, what are you going to do with that saw? Well, frankly, that left ear of Conklin's has disturbed me from the moment I first set eyes on it. It's not to go. That's it. Now, one, two. You decide to give up, Conklin. <laughs> you knew it was me all the time, sir. From the moment I took that first look at you and you crossed your eyes. <laughs> now, if your left eye had been moved over two inches, you... That was a dead giveaway, wasn't it? I knew Boynton was alive from the moment I mentioned that he was sitting between Marie Antoinette and Josephine, and he began to blush. <laughs> He was sitting between two female frogs. <laughs> I don't mind telling you I consider this infringement of school rules a disgrace. Uh, but, but, sir, if you let me explain. No explanation is acceptable when a principal violates school rules to the extent of using its facilities after hours without the express consent of the board. Uh, however, I shall overlook the affair this time. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. But hereafter, I shall expect you to pursue your hobby at home. Or find a different hobby. Yes, or find a different hobby. Something without Mr. Boynt. Yes, something without Miss Brooks. Will <laughs> <laughs> you permit me the luxury of expressing my own thoughts in my own native language? I'm sorry, sir. Well, Mr. Boynton, if we hurry, we can still catch a movie. Oh, uh, just a moment, please. Uh, Conklin, who made that chair Boynton is sitting on? That one? Yeah. Why, Boynton made it himself, Mr. Stone. His hobby is woodcraft. Oh, it's excellent, beautiful work. You know, Boynton, I took up woodwork a few weeks ago myself, and I, I find it fascinating. Oh, it is, sir. Um... I wonder if you can drop over sometime and give me a few pointers. Well, any time you say, Mr. Stone. I'd be very happy to. How about tonight? Oh, no. Tonight's impossible, Mr. Stone. Mr. Boynton has already promised to help me out with my hobby. You see, I'm a knitter. Well, how could Mr. Boynton help you out with that hobby? Well, my cat's away, and someone's got to get all tangled up in the wool. Come on, Mr. Boynton. (laughs) 
here's the star of our show, Eve Arden. Mr. Conklin's wax dummies of Marie Antoinette and Josephine were really lifelike. But he just didn't do right by their complexion. Mr. Conklin was played by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Bob Rockwell, Gloria McMillan, and Joseph Kearns. I'm sure the wax statues you imagined were far better than anything Mr. Conklin could actually have created in that episode of Our Miss Brooks from the second week of 1954 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. On air at 88.5 and WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City. On your smart speaker and online at WAMU.org. One of the legendary figures of the Old West was Doc Holliday, and for quite a few years, he was romantically attached to the also legendary Big Nose Kate. She doesn't appear in this episode of Gunsmoke, but Frog Nose Kate does. It's a story called Sky, from August 8, 1953, CBS and Gunsmoke. Dodge City and in the territory on west. There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with the U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. If I sit here a while, Marshal. <laughs> of course not. Sit down, Billy. Hey, you look worried, Billy. Boy like you shouldn't look worried. I'm 21. That's a man's age, isn't it, Chester? Oh, sure. 21 is pretty old, Billy. Old enough for Frogmouth Kate, anyway. Every time I come to town, that woman won't give me a minute's peace. Well, maybe she's sweet on you, Billy. Sweet on me. <laughs> look at her at the bar over there. She'll come to and miss me pretty soon. Old enough to be my mother. Well, then why do you stay here? Why don't you go over to the Longhorn or someplace? Aw, oh, Kate's all right when she's sober. Just when she gets drunk, she's such a nuisance. Well, she sure looks drunk now. She is. And when she's like this, there's no worse woman in the whole world. I could kill her when she gets like this. <laughs> Somebody's always going to kill somebody around here. Oh, that's that's just a way of talking, Marshal. <laughs> yeah. I hate to tell you, Billy, but I think Frogmouth Kate has spotted you. Yeah, I knew she would. She gets lonesome awful fast, that woman. So that's where you went, Billy. 
Leaving me all alone? Shame on you, honey. I gotta catch my breath once in a while, Kate. You can catch your breath with me, honey. Not with Marshal Dillon and Chester and all the rest of them. Now, nah, Kate, take it easy. I'll take it easy. You and me will take it easy in St. Louis, Billy boy. And quit talking about St. Louis all the time. I ain't about to go to St. Louis. I'm broke right here in Dodge. I got the money, Billy. Almost I got it. Almost enough. <laughs> you and me, huh, baby? Oh, Kate. Why don't you pick on somebody who can at least buy you a few drinks? Well, they've been buying me drinks. I don't care about them anyway. Let's get married, Billy boy. What do you say, huh? You and me. See what I mean, Marshal? Ain't she awful? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she likes you, Billy. Sure. We're a couple of real lovebirds. Yeah. Hey, now stop that. Let, let go of me, Kate. I'll break your head open. Ah, uh, you cute Billy lover boy. Oh, cut it out. Uh, well, if you'll excuse us, we better be moving on. Uh... <clears throat> Chester. Mm. Well, all right, Chester. Yes, sir. So long, Billy. Kate. Now, you never mind them, Billy boy. They're just a couple of crooks like everybody else except you, sweetie. <laughs> you and me, huh? My. <laughs> Poor Billy. Well, he's got to learn somehow. I suppose. Well, the town seems pretty quiet, Chester. I think I'll go to bed. Good idea, Mr. Dillon. I'll sleep in the office tonight. All right, I'll see you in the morning. Good night, sir. It's Chester, sir. Open up. Oh, oh, well, just a minute, Chester. Oh. <clears throat> oh. Uh, what is it, Chester? There's been a shooting, sir, in that rooming house next to the Alphaganza. What? Well, I've got dressed. Come on inside. It's been raining a little, Mr. Dillon. Ah, oh, good. Light that lamp there, would you, Chester? Yes, sir. They sent for Doc, and he woke me up on his way out. He know what it was all about? No, sir. He just said it was in that room in house. Uh, what time is it, anyway? Oh, it'll be daylight soon. Must be about 4.30. 4.30. It's pretty late at night for a gunfight, isn't it? Yes, sir. That's what I thought. There. All right, Chester. I'm ready. Blow the lamp out. Yes, sir. That rain sure helped. Wouldn't it be fine if it stayed this cool all day, Mr. Dillon? Now, you'd be lost if you couldn't complain about the heat, Chester. Well, I'd be willing to think of something else. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Ma Torvinster still runs this rooming house, doesn't she? Last I heard, she did. Yeah. Down here, Marshal Dillon. It's Ma Torvester, all right. Hello, Ma. Right in here, Marshal. Who was it, Ma? Frogmouth Kate. 
She got shot. Kate. It's no use, Matt. She hasn't said a word. She's not likely to now. Uh, who did it, Mom? Oh, I was asleep, Marshal. Heard a shot and come right down. I sent everybody else back to bed and told them to stay there. You don't know who did it, then? He must have jumped out that window right there. You go get him, Marshal. He's got a head start already. Uh, who, Mom? Well, that kid, Billy Daunt. Must have been. Well, why do you think it was Billy? Because he was drinking with her all night over at the Alifraganza, that's why. Been with her all yesterday, I heard, too. Couldn't be nobody else. He well, stole you... her money, too. How do you know he did, Ma? Oh, she showed me once. She kept it right under the mattress there, and it's gone. She had quite a lot of it saved up, too. Everybody knew that. She's planning on going back to St. Louis with it. She wanted Billy to go with her, but I guess he couldn't wait, the little rat. I sure hope I see him hung. Uh, uh, Chester, start looking for him. I'll join you in a few minutes. Yes, sir. I'll go out back first. She's dead, Matt. Oh, that poor girl. It's a wonder she lived this long, being shot so close up. She didn't say anything, not a... Not a word, Matt. She was unconscious the whole time. Yeah. Well, I'll, uh... Chip in toward Barry and her doc, seeing as how she was sort of broke when she died. Nonsense. Kate was a good girl, and I'll be responsible for her getting a fine burial. Finest there is, but you catch that devil Billy Daunt, Marshal. Don't you let him get away. We'll find him, Ma. Well, you sure better. Well, let me know if you hear anything. I'll see you later, Doc. Sure, Matt. Chester and I spent the next couple of hours looking for Billy Daunt, but nobody had seen him since he and Kate had left the Elifraganza together the night before. We did learn, however, that he'd been riding for Luke Atkins, and since it was our only lead, we decided to go out to the ranch and have a talk with Luke. It was mid-morning when we rode up to the main house, and at first the place looked deserted. Anyway, it's cool here under the cottonwoods. Maybe Luke's out on the prairie somewhere. Well, if he's smart, he's keeping away from the sun right there in the house. Uh, oh. Now, leave the horses, Chester. They'll stand. All right, you... Who's there? It's Matt Dillon, Luke. Oh, just resting a little, Marshal. Hello, Chester. Hello, Luke. It's cooler out here. Sit down. My gracious, what happened to you? Did it look bad? Yeah, bad enough to skip church this Sunday, Luke. Black eye, huh? I ain't got a mirror. Your jaw's swollen, too. Fool kid, I never saw him like that before. He must have been drunk. Billy Daunt? He's been spending his pay in Dodge the last couple of days and... Say, is that why you're here, Marshal? Billy get in trouble there? Maybe. What'd he beat you up for, Luke? Why, well, just rode in here this morning early and said he needed a better horse than his and wanted my buckskin gilding. He was all excited, and I started to argue with him. And he jumped me before I knew what was happening. Knocked me out for a minute, I guess. He's gone then, huh? Sure he's gone. I came up to the house here and got my rifle and watched him go. Funny thing, though, he didn't leave right away. What do you mean? 
You fooled around down there in the barn for most an hour. I don't know what he was up to, but I just sat here on the porch with my rifle in case he got any more crazy ideas. He finally rode off, though, headed west. Well, we're after him, Luke. Are we in bad trouble, Marshal? Yeah, it looks like it. I'm sorry to hear that. He's always been a pretty good boy. Where are the rest of your men, Luke? Still in Dodge, Marshal, spending their pay. Ah. Well, you take care of that eye. So long. Goodbye, Marshal. Chester. Bye, Luke. Well, there's not much question about Billy now, is there? Yeah, there sure isn't. Start looking for tracks, Chester. Yes, sir, I have been. The ground's still damp from the rain last night. We ought to cut this trail easy. I don't see anything. Now, look there, over there. Those are fresh tracks. Yeah, they're fresh, all right, but they lead toward the ranch, not away from it. Yeah. Well, let's follow him anyway, Chester. What? Come on, let's ride. Chester figured either Billy was riding backwards or I was crazy. But he stopped arguing after a couple of hours and we rode in silence the rest of the day. Long about dusk, I figured we were catching up with him, but we couldn't afford to lose the trail. And when night came, we made camp. Next morning at daylight, we went on. By noon, it was clear Billy hadn't taken any rest at all. A couple of hours later, we began to wonder how much longer his horse could hold out. This is the doggondest hunt I was ever on. Billy just isn't very smart, that's all. Well, I must be half crazy. Beating up Luke Atkins like that? When a man's in a panic, he'll do almost anything, Chester. Well, you'd think he'd at least have sense enough to rest his horse now and then. And it'll be easier for us if he doesn't. Chester. Hmm? Look up ahead there. Hey, by heaven, it's a horse. Yeah. Huh. That's a buckskin. It's not saddled. There isn't a thing around, sir. This side of that bluff, anyway. The bluff's too far away for an ambush. The horse doesn't look very good, does he? He's not even eating. Yeah. Oh. He may never be any good again. That fool kid. Well, he can't be very far away. Unless he's found another horse. Look at the buckskin's hooves, Chester. Why, he isn't even shod. Yeah, Billy pulled his shoes when he left him. He sure made a mistake, though. What do you mean? That's what he was doing in Luke's barn, putting the shoes on backwards. Now he's pulled them. I wouldn't fool anybody. All it did was help wear his horse out even more. He had me fooled for a while. Anyway, we'll catch him pretty soon now. Well, his tracks lead toward the bluff there. Probably into that clump of trees. Well, if that's where he is, he can see us. All right, we'll ride in from different directions. He can't get both of us. Okay, sure. 
half hour later, Chester and I had reached the trees about the same time and without being shot at. There was a spring there and a tiny cabin, deserted. One set of footprints led up to the place and two sets led away from it. Billy had taken whoever lived there along with him. Figuring there wasn't too much hurry now, we watered our horses and let them breathe for a while. The way I figured, Mr. Dillon, Billy was here about dawn this morning. Well, he won't be far away, not more than 15 or 20 miles at the most. Unless he's found a horse. Well, that's why he's carrying his saddle, isn't it? Yeah. Only Billy isn't carrying the saddle. What? He's saving his strength. Whoever was in this cabin is doing the hard work. You mean Billy took him along just to carry his saddle? Yeah, he found himself a pack horse, Chester. Mr. Dillon, I'm getting to have less use for Billy Daunt every minute. Come on, let's ride him down. Before it's too late for this poor fellow, whoever he is. All right, Chester. Well, our horses are in good shape. We ought to catch him in a few hours. I sure hope so. Uh, you take the side of the trail, Chester. Track about ten yards behind me, huh? All right, sir. All right, let's go. Don't bother to watch the trail anymore, Chester. It's headed right for that Nestor's shack there. So keep your eyes open. You think Billy might still be there? Yeah, he might be. Maybe he's inside, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Let's spread out a little. All right, sir. Now, wait a minute. The door. Who are you? All right. Are you alone, ma'am? You the law? I'm Marshal Dillon from Dodge. You're too late, Marshal. You mean he's gone? He's gone. Take a look around at the side, Marshal. Right around there. Go on, look. Both of you. Oh, my goodness, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. He was killed with a knife. Yes, sir, he sure was. that your husband, ma'am? Yes. I'm sorry it happened, but if it's any comfort to you, we'll catch that boy. I promise you that. Don't matter now. Uh, he had another man with him. Where's he? Inside. I've been trying to fix him up. It was near dead when they got here. Poor old Clabe. Clabe? He's 75 years old, Marshal, and that's too old to be used like an animal. Rotten kid. I'd uh, like to talk to him, ma'am. Come on inside. It's all right, Claves. Marshal Dillon from Dodge. We've known Clave for ten years, Marshal, ever since we've been here. Never hurt nobody. Sure. Uh, 
Can you talk a little, Clay? Uh, I'll be all right, Marshal. I'm just kind of wore out. Twenty miles packing a saddle in this weather. Fast, too. Had me walk fast. How long ago did the boy leave here? Three, four hours, Marshal. Took our mule, but he won't get far. Oh? Why not? Mule's too old. After ten miles, just quits. Your husband tried to stop him, is that it? Yeah. Got mad when he saw what the boy had done to Clay, and the boy knifed him. Never gave him a chance. He's wild crazy. He sure is, Marshal. Scared, too. I never saw anybody so scared. He's in a real panic, Clay. But how come he used a knife? That doesn't sound right. It's all he's got, that's why. What? He ain't armed, except for that knife. He doesn't have a gun? He took our rifle, but there's no ammunition for it. We run out. Took it anyway. But when he came to your place, Clay, didn't he have a six-gun? No, sir. Just that knife. That's all he had. I got an old Navy pistol, but it's busted. I ain't been able to get it fixed. I sure don't understand it, Mr. Dillon. He's like a wild animal, that's what he is. He oughtn't to be loose. He won't be for long, ma'am. Clay, I hope you'll be all right. Um, I'm just plumb wore out. Clay's going to stay right here, Marshal. He's too old to be living by himself anyway. Good. Uh, well, we'll be going now, ma'am. But uh, we'll bury your husband first. Now, if you'll just show us where you'd like to have the grave. Thank you, Marshal. The woman wanted her husband buried right where he'd fallen. So we dug the grave there and laid him into it. She watched, straight-faced, without a tear. And she said goodbye and went back into the house. It was just after sunset when we caught up with Billy. Just as the woman had said, the mule had gone ten miles and quit. Billy saw us coming, started running across the prairie on foot. His panic had made him as nearly brainless as a man could get. Look at him, Mr. Dillon. Did you ever see anything like it? He's still got a knife, Chester. Hold it, Billy. You can't get away. Right up on the other side of him, Chester. Yes, sir. You've run far enough, Billy. You'll have to shoot me, Marshal. No, we won't. Take your rope down, Chester. Good idea, sir. All right, Chester, let's rope him. We both got him. Now stay on your horse, Chester. Just keep your rope tight. No, hold on. Touch you, Marshal. Let go of the knife, no. Billy. All right, Chester, slack up a little. All right, drop your rope, Chester. I'll tie him up with no, it. No, you don't. Oh, me. Hey, you're a wild one, Billy. You'll never get me back. Not alive, you won't. Never. I think we will. Let's make him walk back, Mr. Dillon. I won't walk. You can drag me, but I won't walk. Now we'll throw him across your horse, Chester. You and I can ride double till we make camp. Maybe that'll calm him down. <laughs> 
That Billy won't eat a thing, Mr. Dillon. He's just been crouched over there looking like a cornered animal ever since I woke him up this morning. Still pretty spooky, huh? No, he sure is. Well, let's go talk to him. There, uh... There's some bacon over there, Billy, if you want it. Aren't you hungry, Billy? I didn't kill her, Marshal. Oh? You've been running awful hard for an innocent man. I didn't kill her, I tell you. Uh, we'll let the judge decide that, Billy. I was waiting for her outside, and I heard the shot. I went around, and her window was open, and she was lying there. I didn't kill her. And why did you run, Billy? I knew you'd be after me. I had to get away. I ain't going back to Dodge. I ain't going. Yeah. All right, let's get packed up, Chester. How is he, Chester? He just keeps standing there looking out the cell bars. But he did drink some of the coffee I left him. Uh, I don't know, Chester. Sometimes I think just the act of running itself makes a man afraid. The more he runs, the more panicked he gets. Anyway, it ain't healthy. A young boy like Billy... Well, maybe you'll come out of it in time. Morning, Marshal. Chester. Morning, Mr. Green. Ah, you're up early, Mr. Green. Well, I heard you brought Billy Dawn in last night, Marshal, so I figured I'd better turn this over to you. A six-gun? Whose is this? It's Billy's gun, Marshal. I've been fixing it for him. Billy's gun? That's right, Mr. Dillon. Billy didn't have a gun, remember? How long have you had it, Mr. Green? Oh, he brought in the first day he came to town, Marshal. A cylinder was loose, been shaving lead. It's okay now. I'll fix it fine. You've had it all the time? Yes, sir. I, I was just keeping it for him until I heard he'd been arrested. I see. Uh, well, thanks, Mr. Green. I'll see that you're paid for your work. Oh, sure, Marshal. That's all right. <laughs> goodbye. Oh, uh, goodbye, Mr. Green. Well, looks like Billy was telling the truth. Yeah. You sure can't convict a man of a shooting if he didn't have a gun. No, sir. But there's that nester he killed. Yeah. And all for nothing. Yes, sir. Well, Chester, it's pretty hopeless now, but... Let's see if we can find out who did kill Kate. Probably just some thief. Heard about her money. Yeah. Probably. Gunsmoke, transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The special music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Howard McNear, and Parley Bear as Chester, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty.
Gunsmoke has been selected by the Armed Forces Radio Service to be heard by our troops overseas. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. A rare, unresolved Gunsmoke episode titled Sky from the summer of 1953. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at WAMU.org or on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And do visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. This Wednesday, February 5th, would have been the 100th birthday of Frank Muir, whom you may remember from two BBC radio series, My Word and My Music, that aired here in Washington for many years. He was a great comedy writer. In 1980, Queen Elizabeth made him a commander of the British Empire, and his first love was radio. With his writing partner, Dennis Norden, Mr. Muir wrote a sketch in 1948 for a BBC radio program called The Third Division. It was a parody of the travelogue short subjects that were then a standard part of movie shows, along with cartoons and newsreels. It's a perfect audio comedy sketch, and it starred, among others, the young Peter Sellers. And now, things really get interesting. Not unlike America's Stan Freeberg, the British Mr. Sellers had a string of hit comedy records in the 1950s and early 60s. The man who produced those recordings was George Martin, who went on to fame, and certainly fortune, as perhaps the most important record producer in history. You may have heard of a group called The Beatles. Well, when Mr. Martin and Mr. Sellers were looking for material for their first LP together in 1958, they revived Mr. Muir's sketch from ten years earlier, this time with Mr. Sellers playing all the parts, except for a morose undertaker played by Mr. Martin, who also provides a lame piano solo. With Peter Sellers channeling Lowell Thomas and using a good old American mispronunciation of the South London suburb of Balham, here... Recorded for the Parlophone label and released in 1958 is Frank Muir and Dennis Norden's Balham, Gateway to the South. Balham, Gateway to the South. Balham through the verdant grasslands of Battersea Park, and at once we are aware that here is a land of happy, contented people who go about their daily tasks in truly democratic spirit. This is Busy High Street, focal point of the town's activities. Note the quaint old stores whose frontage is covered with hand-painted inscriptions. Every one a rare example of native Balham art. Let us read some of them as our camera travels past. Look 
Fucking up fools. Joyce, he does. A song to remember at the Tantamount Cinema. A suit to remember at Montague Moss. Promotions conducted with decorum and taste. Fight a night, bring your own paper. Rally Thursday, Barclay Square. Viscountess Lewisham and Mrs. Gerald Legg. Up the ruling classes. This shows the manifold activities of Balham's thriving community. But in quiet corners, we still find examples of the exquisite workmanship that Balham craftsmen have made world famous. Toothbrush holesmanship. On my forge, I carved the little holes in the top of toothbrushes. It is exciting work, and my forefathers have been engaged upon it since 1957. <clears throat> the little holes in the top are put in manually, or in other words, once a year. I recently had the honor of demonstrating my craft before the only of ice. He stopped by one day for a couple of words. I did not understand either of them. So much for Balham's Industries. Now let us see a little more of the town. Here is the great park covering nearly half an acre. This is where the children traditionally meet by the limpid waters of the old drinking fountain. A drinking fountain that has for countless years across the vast aeons of time given untold pleasure to man, woman and child. Beside this fountain, donated by able counselor Quills as long ago as 1928... The little ones sit around a trim nursemaid and listen spellbound and enchanted as she reads them a story. With one bound, he was by her side. Nora felt his hot breath on her cheek as he ripped the thin silk from... We are now entering old Balham. Time has passed by this remote corner. So shall we. But Balham is not neglecting the cultural side. This is Eugene Quills, whose weekly recitals are attended by a vast concord of people. He has never had a lesson in his life. Such is the enthusiasm of Balham's music lovers that they are subscribing to a fund to send Eugene to Italy or Vienna or... Anywhere. Night falls on Balham. From Quill's Folly, Balham's famous beauty spot, which stands nearly ten feet above sea level, the town is spread below us in a fairyland of glittering lights, changing all the time. Green, amber, red, red and amber, and back to green. The nightlife is awakening. The El Morocco Tea Room. Hi, miss. Yes, what do you want? Pilchers. They're off, dear. Uh, baked beans? Off. Oh, meatloaf meat salad? That's off, too. Uh, pot of tea? No tea, dear. Well, just milk, then. Milk's off. Roll and butter, then? No butter, dear. Oh, just a roll. Only bread, love. I might have just as well have stayed at home. Well, I don't know. It does you good to have a fling occasionally. And so the long night draws on. 
The last stragglers make their way home, and the lights go out one by one as Dorn approaches and the bell of St. Quill's Parish Church tolls ten o'clock. Balham sleeps. And so we say farewell to this historic borough with many pleasant memories. And the words of C. Quill Smith, Balham's own bard, burning in our ears. Broad-bosomed, bold, becalmed, benign, lies Balham, four square, on the northern line. Matched by no marvel save in eastern scene, a rose-red city, half as gold as green. By country churchyard, ferny fen and mere, what quills mute, inglorious, lies buried here? Oh, stands the church clock at ten to three, and is there honey still for tea? Honey's off, dear. Dennis Norden and British radio comedy hero Frank Muir, who would have turned a hundred this week. Mr. Muir died in 1998 at the age of 77. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. There are many reasons not to text while you're walking, but a big one, according to some security experts, is avoiding pickpockets. According to a report in The Atlantic last year, that ancient crime is on the rise again after decades of steady decline. The picks may be after your debit card or even your phone if it's in your purse or pocket, but they're back. It was a much more common offense in the fall of 1953 when this broadcast, The Big Pick, came from NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to Bunko Fugitive Detail. An organized gang of pickpockets is working in your city. None of the victims can give a description of the suspects. There's no lead to their identity. Your job? Get them. It was Tuesday, May 10th. We were working the day watch out of Boko Fugitive Division, pickpocket detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Didion. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from communications, and it was 11.14 a.m. when I got to room 38. Bunko. Joe? Yeah. Anything come in from St. Louis? Yeah, they checked the Carney's plan back there. No trace of Beck. Tip was wrong then, huh? Yeah, looks like it. Where to now? Well, about all we can do is sit and wait for a reply on the radiogram. He's got to be someplace, and he isn't going to stop working. There'll be word on him somewhere. I'll be glad when we turn the key. Uh, Excuse me. Yes, sir? I wonder if you could help me. Well, we'll try, sir. You want to come on in? What's it all about? I've been robbed. Sir? They took my money, all of it. Every bit. I don't know how, but they took it all. I don't know what to do. Well, do you want to sit down? Yes, please. I don't know how they did it. I tried to be so careful, but they took it all. 37 years doing without, and now I got nothing. Well, this is my partner, Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Maybe if you tell us what happened here, we could help you. Yes, maybe. I'm Lewis Bonning. Yes, sir. I live at 1820 Woodworth Court, Los Angeles, 12. I have a room there. I see. $14 a week in privileges. If you tell us what happened, Mr. Bonning, we might be able to do something for you. I'm trying to tell you. 
trying to think of what happened. I don't believe it yet. Anna, you said you were robbed, is that right? Yes, $5,200, all gone. Well, were you held up? No, nothing like that. If it was that way, I'd know. But just all of a sudden, I put my hand in my pocket to feel the money, and it wasn't there. Nothing was there. I had a pocket full of empty. Now, sir, do you usually carry that much money around with you? No, mister, I got it in the bank this morning. I'm going away. I was leaving Los Angeles. That's why I had the money, so I could leave. All right, sir, suppose you start right at the beginning and tell us the whole story, will you? Well, my wife passed on four weeks ago, Monday, April 4th. Yeah, that's when it happened, April 4th. Uh-huh. We came to this country when we were both young. She died four weeks ago. Yes, sir, if you'd go on about the theft, please. Well, I thought I'd maybe go back to Chicago to live with one of my daughters. She asked me to come, and I thought I would, so I drew out the money. You took the money out of the bank? Yes, this morning. $5,200. It's what we'd saved. I couldn't leave it here in the bank if I was going to be in Chicago. Well, you could have had the money transferred, you know. Well, I guess that's what I should have done, but it's too late now. Did you have the money when you left the bank? Uh, yes. I rolled the bills up and put them here in my pocket. Uh, here, this one on the left side. I kept my hand on the money so I knew it was there. Now, what'd you do after you left the bank? Well, I was going home. I thought I'd walk home. I went down the street, and then I thought I'd stop for some coffee. I was all packed at my room, so I didn't want to make a mess. I thought I'd have a cup of coffee out. Mm-hmm. I went into the big market. They have a coffee counter there, and I went in and sat down. All the time I kept my hand on the money, I could feel it through the pants. It was in my pocket. Yes, sir. I had the coffee, and, and I went to go out of the market. As I walked through all the people, a box fell off a stack of boxes and almost hit me. I didn't think anything about it. Nobody was hurt. All the people in the market came over to me and asked if I was all right, but I said yes, I was all right. Then I went out of the market. I got on the street. When I remembered about the money, it was gone. Now, it had been taken from you in the market, is that right? Yes, mister. It was in the market, I think. Well, let's get this straight. While you were in there, did anyone bump into you? I don't understand. I mean anyone jostle you, bump into you without reason. Mm, no. No, I don't remember. Did anybody follow you from the bank to the market that you noticed? It was hard to tell, mister. There are a lot of people on the streets. It would be hard to tell if there was anyone. Yes, sir, I understand. But was there any one person you recall having seen this morning? One face that you might remember, maybe? No, mister. I, I tried to think about it, but there's no one. I see. Do you think you'll get it back for me? Sir? The money. It makes a big difference. How's that? Before, when I had the money, I could go and live with my daughter. With the money, I could be independent. It'd be a different feeling. You understand, don't you? Yes, sir, I do. That's why it's so important you get the money back, so I can go live with my daughter. So I can do that. That's the only reason I trouble you. The only reason I have to ask you to find the man. That's the only reason I got it's a little different with us, sir. Huh? We've got another one. For the past several weeks, we've been getting reports of the existence of an organized gang of pickpockets working in Los Angeles. Contrary to most opinion, a pickpocket seldom works alone. Like everything else, it's gotten to be a highly specialized operation. Normally, there are several men to each team. The jug mob, who usually spends his time in banks looking for the victim. The shover, who pushes or bumps the victim so his money can be taken and the wire, who does the actual pocket picking. In certain types of operation, the jug mob is replaced by the short, who works streetcars and spots people who have large amounts of money. Under normal circumstances, a professional group of pickpockets can take approximately $5,000 a day out of a tip or a crowd. 11.47 a.m. We had the victim, Louis Bonning, look through the pictures of known pickpockets for a possible identification of the man who'd taken his money. He was unable to find anybody who looked familiar. We told him to go home. We said that we'd be in touch with him. 
12.35 p.m., Frank and I check back into the office. They're rough, huh? Yeah, they all come out that color, don't they? I sure hope we can do some good for him. Yeah, nice old guy. You want to get in touch with Slim Ramos? Let's go down and talk to him. He might be able to come up with something. Yeah, I'll get his number. i got to get a new book. This one's getting almost impossible to use. Yeah. <laughs> Look at this. Number's all crossed out. You know, when they change the prefixes? Yeah. I made a mess out of my book. Here it is. there? Hey, Slim, this is Frank Smith. Yeah. Good. Yeah, say, Slim. Now, wait a minute. Now, the reason I called you, Joe, and I, I'd like to come down and talk to you if it's okay. You gonna be there this afternoon? Uh, no, nothing wrong. Just a couple of things we want to check over with you. Yeah. Okay. See you around 2.30, huh? That all right? Yeah. Okay. No, I know where it is. Right. See you then. He's going to be in all afternoon. Said he'd be glad to see us. Good. Maybe he's got something we can use on this thing. Well, he'll lay it out for us if he has. Well, that's the one good thing about starting with nothing, isn't it? Yeah. We can only go one way. Provo, 6 p.m. Frank and I checked out of the office and we started for Santa Monica. Slim Ramos had been one of the best pickpockets in the business. He'd been arrested and served a term in San Quentin. After he'd been paroled, he'd opened a small stand on one of the amusement piers near the beach. From his past record, Ramos had been cooperative with the police department and several arrests were attributed to his information. Ramos was operating a Wheel of Fortune booth at the end of the pier. Frank and I parked the car and walked out. Quite a place, huh? Yeah. I got to bring the kids down here some Sunday to get a real kick out of it. Yeah. That's Slim's booth there, isn't it? Yeah. I don't see him. He said he'd be here. He might be around back. Yeah. I'd sure like to win one of those hams. Yeah. Big ones, aren't they? Uh-huh. Slim, you around? Yeah, hold on. Be right out. Oh, hi, Joe, Frank. Hi, How are you? I have some bank packaging some groceries. Uh-huh. What can I do for you? I'd like to talk to you about a cannon operation. Yeah, I should have known. Come on back here. We can sit down. All right. Hey, watch your heads on the counter. Yeah. Got a couple of chairs back here. Come on, I can finish up the second. All right, go ahead. Oh, well, uh, what's it about? Have you got any rumbles about a bunch work in the downtown area? What kind of operation? Jug mob. Like I heard something about a bunch coming in from the east. KC, I think. Seems I heard they worked a couple of still dates with a Connie back there. Boss didn't know they were working. When he found out, he had them kicked off the lot. You got any names for us? No, not right off. Got to check around. Might be able to come up with them. What's the bit? Yeah, they've been scoring good work in the downtown area. Took an elderly man for his life savings this morning. Uh-huh. Figures. Huh? They always pick on the elderly ones. Bump into a young guy, might give you trouble. Pick the old ones, they don't seem to notice it. Yeah. How you been doing, Slim? Oh, good. Got it real good. I ain't killing the world, but my rent's paid. I know there ain't gonna be a fuzz on my tail tonight. I got it real good. How long you been here now? Oh, I guess it's been about a year. Thought if I could get permission, I might go out with a carny this year. You know, with the front end? Mm-hmm. Got a letter from a friend that's got a grind store at one of the big ones. He says he might be able to get me in. A grind store? Yeah, you know, everybody plays, everybody wins. Pay a dime to win a piece of slum worth maybe a couple of cents. Well, this carny I might go with has got no grift in the front end, all percentage games. way I figured, if you go out with a good one, weather holds, you're going to do all right. Well, you figure you can come out better than you do here? Oh, sure. You see, we get a real good play over the weekends. Regular days, it's kind of slow. Go out with a big carny, you can draw crowds anytime if the weather's good. Bound to come out better. Mm-hmm. You'll check into those names for us, will you, Slim? Yeah, I'll make a couple of calls. Can you make them now? 
No, I have to get in touch with the guys tonight. I'll get back to you first thing in the morning. All right, fine. Same number, Michigan 5211? That's right. Bunko Fugitive. Yeah, all right. I'll give you a call. Uh, buy you guys a cup of coffee? No, thanks, Slim. We're just going to eat. You want to come along? We'll buy you one. Okay. Now, hold on while I check with Harry. Have him keep an eye on things. All right. Hey, you go ahead. Okay. Now, watch the counter. <laughs> I came up too fast the other day. I like to call the skin off my back. Yeah. <laughs> hold on a minute. I'll be right back. All right. Nice looking place, huh? Yeah. He's painted it since we were down here last time. Yeah. Well, let's go. You painted up the place, huh, Slim? Yeah. Thought I might turn a bigger tip. The place looked good. You know, people like a clean-looking place. How are the rest of the boots doing down here, Slim? Oh, pretty good. I told you. Great. Other times, a little slow. Uh-huh. Any grift down here? No. At least if there is, I haven't heard of it. Guy in the Santa Monica Police Department, Lieutenant Cunningham, he keeps the place real clean. Yeah, that's right. Last thing I heard about was a guy who was working with a camelback wheel. A what? Camelback. Like mine, only this was gaffed. How? Smoothest pitch around. The arrow is connected to a spindle. Spindle goes through a stand. Looks like there'd be no way to G it. Plain pipe. Looks clean. What's the gimmick? Well, the frame rests on four pins. Pins are supposed to be what anchors it to the counter. Uh-huh. Now, three of the pins go into one piece of the counter. They really do hold the wheel in place. The other one goes through a separate piece of wood on the booth side of the counter. There's a space between the board on the booth side and the one the three legs go through. Yeah. Now, the pin in the fourth leg is loose. It's connected with a bunch of levers inside the pipe. Acts as a brake on the wheel. All the operator has to do is lean against the board, and he's got complete control of the wheel all the time. Well, that's a real nice deal, isn't it? Yeah, the way they figured, it's perfect. In case they get a cowboy in the crowd, the mark can pick the wheel right up out of the counter. Shows that there's no wires running to it. The wheel's gaffed, and there's no way to prove it. Set it up with a couple of sticks in front, let them win a couple of times, you got it made. That's the way they figure it. Doesn't work out, though. Well. Now, like on my wheel, I got 120 numbers on it. Figure I get good action, I'm going to have maybe half of them covered. Right off, the odds are on my side. Uh-huh. Out of the rest, there's only one winner. Half of them covered means a gross of about six bucks. I give away five dollars worth of groceries. Even with a winner, I come out every time. Percentages prove it. Look at it that way, you don't need a gaff wheel. Yeah, it's too bad more of them don't figure it like this. Yeah, I suppose. Took me a long time to find it out. Yeah, but you came up with the answers. I hope I can do the same for you on the cannon operation. So do we. It's funny. I get to thinking when I was working as a wire. How we figured that any time we could lift a poke from the mark was a big laugh. A lot of difference now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now I sleep nights. Two fifteen p.m. We continued to talk to our informant, Slim Ramos. He said that he didn't know the name of the carnival the possible suspects had been fired from. He said that he'd call some of his contacts and try to get the information for us. We set up a time for him to get in touch with us, and then Frank and I drove back to the office. We contacted Captain Didion and made arrangements for additional men to be assigned to help us. Sergeants John DeBetta and Danny Gilmore were asked to aid us in a search of the market where the victim had been robbed. We spent the next three hours in the market looking at the crowd in the hopes that we'd see a known pickpocket or even see a wire in operation, but the surveillance netted us nothing. We made arrangements for the victim's bank to be watched the following morning. 6.15 p.m., Frank and I got back to the squad room. Well, sure does a good business, doesn't it? Right. The market, Joe. A lot of people go in there. Yeah. What's the matter with you? Well, I was just thinking. I guess it comes down to the point where the only way to hang on to your money is to carry it in your hand and keep your fist closed. It's darn close. I was talking with Lieutenant Jack Swan. He was telling me a guy came in here from Nebraska, came in by bus. Yeah. He was sitting in the station waiting for a coach to take him up north. Had all his money in his shoe. In his shoe? Yeah. Had it in his left shoe. Had the money all flat so we could walk on it. Figured it'd be safe there. Or wasn't it? No. Dozed off for a minute. Next thing he knows, shoe's off and the money's gone. How would anybody know where it was? I don't know. The guy that took it found it, though. Guy dozed off for a minute, loses his shoe and all his money. Anything turn up on it? No. I get it. 
Bunker Fugitive Friday. Yeah. Yeah, Slim. Mm-hmm. What was that name again? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did he say about it? Now, wait a minute. Frank? Yeah. Here you go. Let me have a pencil. Pencil, too. Yeah. Okay, thank you. All right, Slim, go ahead. Was it with a K? Uh-huh. Yeah. What? O-L-C. C is in Charlie. O-T-T. -T. Right. You know where they're staying. Uh-huh. All right. Well, give us a call if anything more turns up, huh? Right. Okay, Slim. Thanks a lot. Right. Bye. How do you do? Well, pretty good. Three names of the guys who worked the Carney and KC. Yeah? Slim talked to a friend, got the information that the guys who work in the downtown area have been scoring real good. Say where we could find them? No. He's going to try to get the address for us. Well, we took a big jump just knowing who they are. Deal now is to make it work. What do you mean? Well, Slim says his bunch is pretty hinky. They're playing it real careful. Yeah. Word's out they got two more big scores to make, and then they're going to leave town. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. Three names our informant had given us were Howard Kremer, Victor Leiden, and Edward Alkin. We had the names checked through our record bureau, but we found that none of the three men had been arrested in Los Angeles. We got a radiogram off to the police department in Kansas City, the last place the trio was known to have worked. We asked that all information on the thieves be forwarded to us. We also sent a teletype to George Breton up at Sacramento CII, asking him to check the names for us. The following morning, Wednesday, May 11th, we got word from Kansas City that the officials there were forwarding mugshots and descriptions of the three men. During the day, Frank and I met with Captain Didion, and a surveillance of the downtown area banks was set up. On Friday morning, when Frank and I checked into work, a special delivery letter was waiting for us. In it, we found the records and pictures of Kremer, Leiden, and Alcott. The pictures were handed over to the photo lab, and they started to reproduce them. The descriptions were sent to the print shop, and M.O. sheets were made up. As soon as possible, the pictures and the bulletins were distributed to all bank guards in the area. Additional officers from Bunko Fugitive were placed in the vicinity. Frank and I maintained a rolling stakeout in the downtown area. At 9 p.m. Friday night, the banks closed, and we'd gotten no report that the thieves had worked. Local broadcasts were gotten out on the men, but there were no replies. Monday, May 16th, the plan was put into effect again. No results. Tuesday, the gang didn't work. It began to look as if they might have closed up operations in Los Angeles and moved on. Wednesday, May 18th. Frank and I came back from lunch. I get it. Bunko Fugitive Friday. Yes, sir. That's right. Where? Right. No, don't do anything to let them know. Right. Let's go. Some good? The shover, bank guard, just spotted him. <laughs> The call had come from a bank at the corner of 7th and Jackson Streets. The guard told us that he'd seen one of the suspects enter the bank and under the pretense of filling out deposit slips, observe the withdrawals that the customers were making. It took us a little under three minutes to get to the address. We checked with the guard and he pointed out the suspect. Frank pretended to make out a deposit slip while I waited at the new account desk. When we entered the bank, the suspect was standing at the teller's window. In front of him was an elderly man. As the line moved up, the suspect began to examine the slip that he'd made out. Then as the elderly man took his turn at the window, the suspect walked away and stopped by the door. He waited for the man to finish his business at the teller's counter. Then as he passed through the door, the suspect fell and stepped behind him. Frank and I followed him down the street. 
As he walked through the crowds, he was joined by Edward Alcott, the shover in the operation. The elderly man entered a small tobacco store, and as he went through the door, the wire, Howard Kremer, joined the other two suspects. As the elderly man stood at the counter waiting to be served, the shover walked over to the magazine rack. He stood looking at the magazines for a moment, and then as he turned away, he seemingly tripped and fell against the proposed victim. Both Frank and I knew what was coming. We were watching for it, and yet we missed the actual theft. The wire moved in and removed the victim's money so fast that we couldn't see it. The shover took the wallet from the wire, and the gang was ready to move on. Frank and I stepped into him. All right, Mr. Police Officers, you're under arrest. For what? Stop dreaming. You know the route. Now, come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. All right, mister, come on, on your feet. Get up. Get away from me, cop. Leave me alone. You're going to regret this. Shoving a citizen around. No reason for this. How about the other two? They're out. All right, let's get him downtown. How about the victim? No, he left when the beef started. Better try to catch him. Yeah. You're going to be sorry for this. You wait. You're going to be real sorry shoving an honest citizen around. Yeah, that's a trouble with you, punk. What do you mean? You're wrong on both counts. The three suspects were taken into custody and brought downtown. The victim's wallet was found on the person of Edward Alcott. It was identified by the owner and booked as evidence. 3.15 p.m. We took the wire, Howard Kremer, to the interrogation room. Sit down, Kramer. Yeah. All right, you want to give us a statement? For what? Come off it. You know what we're talking about. You've got to have me cross with somebody else. I'm trying to level with you. I don't know what you're talking about. You want us to lay it out for you? I don't care much either way. You guys slam into a store where I'm trying to buy a pack of cigarettes, and all of a sudden I got handcuffs on, you tell me I'm hooked for being a pickpocket. That's the way you want to tell it, huh? There ain't any other words. Your two friends tell it different. What two friends? Two fellas we picked up with you. This is a big town, a lot of people. You walk into a store, you don't ask who's standing next to you. They put the whole deal on you. Who? Lydon and Alton. Never heard them. How long do you figure you're going to keep this up, mister? As long as it takes to get you on my side. They don't build days that long. That's your loss. I'm a nice fellow if you take the time to get to know me. All right, Kramer, this is way off the road. Now, maybe you got all day, we haven't. You can either give it to us here and now, or we can drop you into a cell and let you wait it out. You put me in a tank, and I'll be out in half an hour. How many times have you been arrested? Who says there was a first? How many times? You got the books? Look it up. We ask you a question. So I'm not a genius. I got trouble with addition. Take everything out of your pockets. What? Come on. Or why? Now look, you're running at a funny time here, Kramer. Then you better ring the bell, because I'll need more of it. You got a job? Yeah, I'm a president of a bank. You're going way out on this, Kramer. I like the scenery. You work? Yeah. Where? Round, old special place. What do you do? I'm a sales. What do you sell? Whatever people can afford. All right, now come on, put your things on the table right now. You can sign a receipt? They aren't going to be taken from you. want to see what you're carrying. Okay. You boys deserve a break, but I'll tell you now, the numbers in my phone book are mine. Don't go near them. Come on, get it up. Huh? Here's my wand. Handkerchief, comb, nail clippers, some change. A couple of ticket stubs from a movie. A lousy picture. Cigarette slider, that's it. You got any money in that wallet? Yeah. How much? I don't know. I don't pay much attention to how much I'm carrying. You can't even come close to how much you got. No. Take it out and count it. Okay. One, two, three. All right. Comes out to $3,700. You must do real good at that salesman's job. Company pays big commissions. I put the money in your pocket. Why don't you put it in yours? What'd you say? Look, cop, I've been around. I've been with most of the carnies in the country one time or another. I know the score. There ain't a place in the world that the fix can't be put in. Now, why don't you just take the money? You drop it in your pocket, and I'll forget I was ever in here. Won't be nobody hurt. The old guy's may be out a couple of hundred bucks, but so what? He won't miss it. Why not put the fix and we'll both come out all right? Now, the fix just curdled, Kramer. 
What? You said we had the record. Well, you called it. We got all the word about you. Way down the line, you talk about how you worked with Carnies. How long? Huh? What's the longest time you ever stayed with one outfit? I like to move. Yeah, sure you do. That's the way the people who run the show want it. Decent Carney doesn't want a guy like you around. You or anybody like you. You've been on the road taking money away from people who can't afford it for a long time. Now we nail you and you come in here acting like a big man. You do the indignant bit and then when that doesn't work, you try to buy your way out. Well, you've had it, mister. We know it and your two buddies know it. When are you going to take a good look? You really figure you've got it made, huh? We know we have. The other two guys really cop out? The whole thing. All comes down to how you engineered it. You buy what they say? We buy it. Uh-huh. Then there isn't much more for me to say, is there? Not a great deal, no. Okay, let's go. How about a statement? Why? Make it easier on yourself. Easier if I cop out? You know what I mean. Yeah. All right. Bring the girl in. I'll give you a statement. Right. Yeah. You mind if I have a smoke? What was that? I said, you mind if I have a smoke? No, go ahead. Wild one, isn't it? What? Had it all down so pat. Good shover. Better jug mop. I'll sit in the front row with any wire in the business. All that, and it don't add up to a winner. Well, that's like you said. Huh? You got trouble with addition. Howard Nathan Kremer, Edward Francis Alcott, and Victor Frederick Leighton were tried and convicted on six counts of grand theft money and received sentence as prescribed by law. Grand theft money is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than one, nor more than ten years. Dragnet is a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. Dragnet, the big pick, an episode from the day after Pearl Harbor Day in 1953 and from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. On air at 88.5 and WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. Well, if you can't beat them, join them, I say. So on this Super Bowl Sunday, we're going to devote an hour, not to football as such, but to a couple of old-time radio shows in which football figures lightly. The first is an episode of Michael Shane, Private Detective. It stars Wally Mayer, one of Orson Welles' Mercury players, and an actor with a different slant on the radio private eye. And be sure to listen for what I'm betting is the only radio commercial you've ever heard for Piston Rings. From November 5th, 1946, and the Mutual Network, it's an episode called The Return to Huxley from the series Michael Shane, Private Detective. Oh, oh, why, yes, of course. Tell no speak English. Will you be quiet? I will take no college stuff, and that's final. Mr. Shane says he'll be delighted to take the case. The Hastings Manufacturing Company and the Kayside Corporation present Michael Shane, Private Detective, starring Wally Mayer and Kathy Lewis. A detective without a murder case is like flapjacks without syrup. Yet that is just the predicament of our friend Michael Shane. 
In fact, things are so dull that we find Michael and his blonde assistant, Phyllis Knight, not at the office, not at police headquarters, not at the morgue, but squirming uncomfortably in the seat of higher learning. In other words, the office of the president of Huxley College. Professor Brill is explaining the situation to our friends. As I say, Mr. Shane, I decided to ask for your help because Phyllis Knight graduated from Huxley and is now, as I understand it, your uh, amanuensis. My... Oh, no, Professor. She's just my secretary. Amanuensis means secretary, my pet. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, yes, you are quite so. You see, Mr. Shane, we don't want to take our problem to the town police. Uh, unfavorable publicity, you know. But something must be done about it immediately. It's affecting the morale of our girls. The girls? I thought this place was co-educational. It is, Mr. Shane. But our feminine students seem to be more affected by it. Oh, a bad rash of Frank Sinatra? Oh, no, no. That is no more than usual. <laughs> You'll understand after talking with the uh, victims. I have two of them waiting now in the outer office. Uh, just a moment, please. <clears throat> oh, Miss Brown, uh, you step in here. Please. Yes, Professor. Uh, very good. Just step right in here, Miss Brown. <laughs> This is Mr. Shane's, Brown. How do you do? Hello. And Miss Knight, and Mr. Shane's associate and one of our former alumni. Oh, how do you do, Miss Brown? I should explain, Miss Brown, that Mr. Shane is a private investigator whom we have employed to solve the uh, embarrassments which have been occurring here recently. Uh, now, if you'll just uh, repeat your story. Uh, well, if you say so, Professor Brill... Uh, it's a little embarrassing. Oh, well, go right ahead, Miss Brown. Oh, well, it, it happened last Monday night. I was in my room in the sorority getting ready for bed. And I was getting into bed when I heard a sound like somebody giggling. Hmm. And uh, an echo, maybe? Oh, no, sir. More like a mad laugh. It came from the window. It was open, but there was a scream. Somebody was trying to pry it off. And then? <laughs> I screamed. That's the usual procedure, I believe. Uh, go on, Miss Brown. Uh, well, he ran away. That's all. Do I understand, Professor Brill, that you brought us all the way down here just because of some peeping Tom? No, 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 no. You don't appreciate the situation, Mr. Shane. In the past week, I've had at least a dozen complaints similar to Miss Brown's. Oh, my. It's gotten so our girls never know when they're safe. Well, I don't think that's peculiar to Huxley College, Professor. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> oh, yes, I see. Well, uh, Mr. Shane, I think you should hear the newest turn of events. Uh, Miss Brown, will you ask uh, Quincy Baldwin to step in here? It's all right if I leave, Professor? Oh, yes, of course, and thank you very much. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Shane. Miss Knight, bye. Goodbye. Until last night, Mr. Shane, none of the boys had been involved. But now, uh, well, I'll let Quincy tell you. Oh, uh, come right in, Quincy. Oh, thank you, sir. Mm, tall, blonde, and rugged. Uh, Mr. Shane, this is Quincy Baldwin, another of our students. Our most uh, brilliant student, I might say. Oh, well, I'm glad to meet you. How do you do, sir? And Miss Knight. Charmed, Miss Knight. Thank you. Quincy, Mr. Shane would like you to tell him your unfortunate experience of last night. Oh. Well, Mr. Shane, about 10 o'clock last night, I was coming home from a lecture... And about a block from my fraternity, a masked man jumped out from behind a hedge and... and yes? Well, he conked me on the head. I see. Just a friendly gesture or some sort of college hazy? Hardly, sir. The man had a gun. Oh. Um, any way for you to recognize him again? Oh, no, sir. He got away. I should add, Mr. Shane, that this individual has been sending anonymous notes to my office. He boasts of his activities and promises more serious things to come. Now, believe me, sir, if it doesn't stop soon, a mass hysteria will break out among the student body. I hope you catch him, sir. 
I'm willing to do anything I can to help. Yes, that's an idea, Quincy. Perhaps you should go along with Mr. Shane. You can acquaint him with the campus and all our activities. Be glad to, sir. Well, uh, for this afternoon, I'd like to work along. If this peeping Tom performs only at night, well, uh, suppose, Quincy, you meet us, say, about uh, 9 or 9.30. Well, um, could you make it 10, sir? Hmm? I have to attend a lecture tonight, and it's on the kinetic principles and thermal diffusion. Really? Hmm. I must try that sometime. Uh, mm, yes, yeah. Okay, okay, make it ten o'clock. Uh, where will we meet? Well, at the clock tower. Uh, meanwhile, maybe this afternoon Quincy can show me around. Huh? You know, bring me up to date on things. Oh, I'm sorry, sugar, I'll want you. We've got to check those, uh, anonymous notes. You said you wanted to work alone. I've changed my mind, if you know what I mean. <laughs> That uh, tower clock is five minutes slow, according to my watch. Mm -hmm. Our good-looking friend should be here now. Oh, good-looking bookend, if you ask me. Oh. Yeah. And since when do you go for blonde guys with curly hair? Well, you look who's talking. You spent plenty of time wandering around the girls' gym this afternoon. Research, honey, research. <laughs> now, it looks to me like this particular seat of learning has got quite a spread, baby. Know what I mean? I get it. Hey, here comes our blonde menace right now. Oh, hello there. Hello. Oh, sorry to be late. The lecture was wonderful. I wish you could have heard the professor on the separation of the isotopes. Oh, no. Have they separated again? Oh, yes, yes, yes. All over town. Mrs. Isotope couldn't stand his drinking. Oh, uh, well, I know it was causing talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it was a good lecture. <laughs> you know, with all your enthusiasm, Quincy, I suspect there's a cute redhead at the desk in front of you. Oh, no, no, no. The feminine element doesn't fit into my program. Oh, really? Look, I, I may seem a little over-enthusiastic, but... You see, my father used to teach here at Huxley. Psychology. So, erudition is probably bred into the corpuscles, you might say. Well, guys have been shot for saying less. Well, <clears throat> suppose we get started, huh? The uh, sorority houses are on Elm Street, aren't they? Yes, the street here to our right. Ah, uh, I'm blamed if I know where we start. Just ambling down sorority row, waiting for some gal to yelp isn't my idea of an investigation. Have you checked on the notes this individual has been writing? Yeah. Yeah, I did that this afternoon. The guy printed them with a pen. No dice. You know, this place hasn't changed a bit. Street's quiet as the grave at ten o'clock. Um, may I make a suggestion, Mr. Shane? Yeah, shoot. Well, it might look better if you and Miss Knight were alone for a while. If you were to get in your car and park under a tree and... Well, you follow my train of thought. <laughs> well, I think I caught the uh, caboose, at least. In basic English, you mean smooching. <laughs> you know, you're improving, Quincy. That's the first sane idea we've had. Please. Oh, Mr. Shane. Wait a minute. Uh, Mr. Shane. Isn't that Professor Brill? Yes, and running, too. Uh, hello, Mr. Shane. I, oh, my, I thought I might miss you. Something terrible has happened. Just terrible. Yeah, what? At the sorority, one of the girls has been murdered. <laughs> Sometimes it takes just one little clue to track down the most daring criminal. And sometimes it takes just one little clue to track down the cause of engine trouble, to find out what's wrong with your car and how it can be fixed. Take smoke, for instance. There's a real clue. Smoke from your exhaust usually means oil pumping. You're using too much oil, burning it up. 
And smoke from your exhaust means you're wasting power, that you're in for further trouble. In most cases, this is evidence of worn-out piston rings. And when your rings are worn out, you're risking dangerous engine wear. So be on the lookout for worn-out piston rings. At the very first clue, see your serviceman, your motor specialist. When he recommends new rings, it will pay you to get Hastings piston rings. They stop oil pumping, check cylinder wear, restore engine performance. They're tough, but oh so gentle. Tough on oil pumping, gentle on cylinder walls. Now remember that name, Hastings piston rings. The best money you can spend on your car. Now back to Michael Shane. We find him with Phyllis and Quincy in the sorority house. Michael is bending over the body of Agnes Carter. Another girl and a middle-aged woman stand by. Oh, what a dreadful, dreadful thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Dead about a half an hour. And a very neat job of strangling. What? What's that wand around her throat, Michael? Well, it looks like... Yeah, yeah, it is. The laces from a football... A football? Who found her? I did. You're one of the students living here? Yes. Jean Winters. I came to ask Agnes for my sewing kit. I forgot it when I moved out. You see, we lived together and... I couldn't stand it any longer. Oh? What was wrong? I'll tell you, Mr. Shane. As house mother of this sorority, I owe a duty to my other girls. I made Jean move to another room before she and Agnes drove the rest of us insane. Please, Mrs. Fuller. They were fighting always. Yesterday I caught them in here pulling hair and smashing things. Oh, boy trouble, I'll bet. I told Agnes I went out with Gil only once. Is that why Agnes slammed the door in Gil's face this afternoon? I saw that myself. Hey, wait, hold it. Who's, uh, Gil? Gil Packard, Mr. Shane. He's our star halfback and my roommate. He was Agnes's boyfriend. Tight little corporation, this. Mrs. Fuller... During the past hour, did anybody hear any unusual sounds from this room? No, it's been very peaceful since yesterday. Oh, oh. Then the killer probably was somebody Agnes knew. That uh, window over there, any way of reaching it from the outside? Well, there's a little porch. I suppose somebody could climb up it. But if you ask me, Mr. Shane, I think you won't have to look outside this room for the murderer. If you're talking about me, Mrs. Fuller, I'll thank you to my... Wait a minute. If you ladies don't mind, I'll run this circus. Michael, listen. Yeah. Outside that window. I'll see if I can get a look at him. Stop where you are. Who is it, Michael? Oh, darn it, he got away. I just saw his back. But, Mr. Shane, aren't you going after him? No, no, it's useless. He's got too much of a head start. Anyway, I got a hunch he's not the man we want. Dollars to donuts, it was the peeping Tom. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, children, I think that's all here for the while. Oh, say, Quincy, huh? have you any idea where I might find Gil Packard at the moment? Well, surely. He has to be in his room by 9 o'clock every night. He's in training. Okay, then let's take off. Our room is right down the hall here. Fine. I don't know your purpose, Mr. Shane, but I can tell you Gil has nothing to do with this affair. I didn't say he had, Quincy. I'd just like to get a list of Agnes's possible enemies. I can't rely too much on Miss Jean Winters. You might also check on the spat between Gil and Agnes. Uh, this is our room. Oh. Oh, hello, Quincy. Gil, this is Mr. Shane and Miss Knight. They want to see you about uh, something... Just a social call, Mr. Packard. Oh. Oh, say, 
You got quite a scratch on your cheek there. It's bleeding. Oh, uh, yeah. I was just changing the bandage. I got it in a scrimmage. Oh, uh, won't you have a chair, Miss? Knight. Thank you. By the way, Mr. Packard, wasn't it rather risky to break training tonight? How did you... Oh, so Agnes blabbed again, did she? Told her what would happen if the coach found out. Thinks it's so funny to make a guy jump through hoops. No. No, it wasn't Agnes, Mr. Packard. I happen to recognize the plaid coat you're wearing. I saw the back of it when you ran away from the sorority house a few minutes ago. That's how you got the scratch, isn't it? Uh, well, I I fell off the porch. Uh, somebody yelled at me, and I, I got scared and ran. I wanted to talk to Aggie, and... Well, I wasn't supposed to be out after nine o'clock. I figured nobody would see me at her window. I'm afraid it's all my fault, Mr. Shane. I told Gil to go over there tonight and have it out with Agnes once and for all. Oh, that trouble over Gene Winters? No, over another guy, Red Burroughs. Aggie knows I'm crazy about her, and yet... Every... Say, what's all this pumping about, anyway? Agnes has been murdered, Mr. Packard. Mur... What? She's dead? That's right. Oh, no. It doesn't seem possible. Well, just this afternoon, Aggie and I... Oh, my... Mike, look. Under that bookcase. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Packard, did you go to see Agnes at any time earlier this evening? Uh, no. Can you prove it? I was with him at the lecture, Mr. Shane. Yes, and we came back here and Quince left. I sneaked out later. I see. Uh, by the way, is that your football under the bookcase there? Huh? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. It's unlaced. Where are the strings? Well, I don't know. It was laced this afternoon. Michael, uh, where are you going? To telephone. I think the police can take over from here. What? What do you mean? Well, for your information, Mr. Packard, Agnes Carter was strangled with a pair of football laces. Or didn't you know? <laughs> Oh, good morning. Oh, good morning, Mr. Shane. We'd like to see Professor Brill. Oh, I think he's busy right now. He telephoned for us to come right over. Oh, then I'll tell him you're here. Uh, just a moment, please. All right. You know, Michael, I don't like this case. There's something fishy about it somewhere. Yeah. Fishy is an aquarium. It's too blame simple. Then you don't think Gil Packard did it? No. Oh, we had to arrest him. Circumstances were too strong. But, uh, you know who our man is. Who? Handsome face. That Quincy bird. What? Quiet. You can go right in. Oh, oh, thanks. Come on, baby. Ah, uh, uh, Mr. Shane, Miss Knight, I'm glad you could come. Quincy here's been pestering me for one solid half hour. Yes, Mr. Shane, you've got to clear Gill. He didn't do it. You know who did? Well... No, but I'm sure Gill is innocent. Why, I've roomed with him for two terms now, the most popular boy on the campus. He's a swell fella. He wouldn't do such a thing. And besides, I was with him most of the evening. But he did break training and wanted to lie about it. Oh, he was just scared. Oh, my, 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 the whole thing is most regrettable, most regrettable. I anticipate a very unfavorable reaction among our regents and alumni. Well, Quincy, I don't see that there's much that can be done. Oh, Gill will be given a fair trial. Mr. And, uh... Shane, almost anybody could have killed Agnes. She had plenty of enemies. The girls didn't like her. The boys got two times. She had a Messalina complex. Is that bad? 
Psychological double talk, Michael. It means a lady wolf. Agnes oh. went for one boy after another. The minute she knew he was in love with her, she'd throw him over to show her power. Gil was just another one. Any of those boys might kill her, or one of the girls. Jean Winters, for instance. Anybody might. Uh, pardon me. Uh, Professor Brill, this special delivery letter just came. Oh, yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Oh, you needn't wait. Uh, yes, Professor. Yes. Oh, excuse me while I see what this is. Yes, sure, sure. Well, if uh, it's as you say, Quincy, everybody on the campus is in this. I, uh, I think I'll let the local police handle it. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, this is frightful. Uh, what's wrong? Uh, Mr. Shane, read this letter. Professor Brill, I told you you couldn't stop me, even from murder. Nobody can outwit me, least of all that wool-brained detective you've hired. <clears throat> You'll be hearing from me again. Hmm. That's all. It's unsigned. Well... Now you'll believe me, Mr. Shane. Gill is innocent. Maybe not. Gill could have mailed this letter before we arrested him to make it look like the work of your peeping Tom. Well, what do you propose to do now, Mr. Shane? Uh, go home, Professor. Uh, what? Yep. Yeah, I don't feel like playing blind man's buff any longer. Yeah? The local police can take over. But, Mr. Shane... I'm sorry. Perhaps I should remind you, Mr. Shane, your fee was dependent upon catching this uh, peeping Tom, who, who is now a murderer. That's okay, Professor. At least I can say I've been through a college. You coming, Phil? Huh? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, uh, oh by the way, Professor... Uh, yes, could you tell me who is the most popular girl on the campus? Uh, let me see. Now. Oh, Claire Fisher won the last popularity contest. Uh, why? Oh, nothing. Nothing. Goodbye, gentlemen. Mike? Hmm? What are we stopping for? Did you leave something back at the hotel? Uh-uh. Honey... Have you seen the new Cary Grant movie? No. Well, you're going to. In fact, you're going to see it three times today. Are you kidding? I thought we were headed for the city. That's what I want everybody to think. Let's go. Come on, baby. Thank you. The uh, theater's right across the street. Until nine o'clock tonight, it's you and me in the dark and cozy. <laughs> Pretty good, hmm? Pretty good. With Cary Grant. Oh, look, my dear Mr. Shane, do we have to keep walking around the same block all night? Mike, let's stop a minute. I tell you, it's going to happen. I feel it in my bones. Oh, I still say nobody's going to pull two murders two nights running. Besides, I just can't see how you figure a nice boy like that Quincy could Yeah, possibly... you wait, sugar, you wait. If I've guessed right, and I think I have, it's going to happen right across the street in that same sorority house. I see. You and the gent sat down over a cup of tea and decided it all, I suppose. Hey, isn't that Quincy coming along the sidewalk? Mm-hmm. And Miss Jean Winters. Oh, carrying tennis rackets. Must have had a night game. Hello, Quincy. Oh. Oh, Mr. Shane, I thought you'd left. Well, uh, we were delayed. Just taking a last stroll around the place. Well, how are you tonight, Miss Winters? All right, thank you. Have a good game? Oh, all right. I don't like playing at night. <laughs> she says she can't see the ball under the lights. I have enough trouble hitting it in the daylight. <laughs> I know what you mean. I have the same trouble. Oh? Do you play, Miss Knight? Oh, I used to, a little. I don't get a chance very often now. <laughs> Come on, Quince, let's go. Uh, just a minute, Jean. Is there anything I can do, Mr. Shane? No. No, thanks. 
We're just uh, taking a last look at the campus. Listen, Quincy, if you're going to restring these rights... All right, all right. Well, um, goodbye, Mr. Shane. Miss Knight. Goodbye. Good night. Night. All right, honey. This is it. What? Michael. Are, are you in a trance? Staring at the stars like that? Come on, baby. We gotta get going. What? What's the matter? I think I know how Miss Claire Fisher is going to be killed if we don't get there first. <laughs> Now, here's another story that will interest every car owner. Mike O'Reilly had all kinds of trouble every time winter came around. From the last of October to the middle of March, his car was the bane of his life. Cold mornings, it just wouldn't start. He'd grind and grind the starter, lose his temper, and run down his battery morning after morning. Then, he found out about Caseite. How Caseite guarantees quick starting in cold weather or double your money back. He tried Caseite, and it worked just like it works for millions of motorists all over the country. So, take a tip from Mike O'Reilly. Get ready for cold weather. Get K-Site from your garage, service station, or car dealer. Only 65 cents a pint. Use it two ways. A pint through the air intake to tune up your motor. A pint in the crankcase to give you quick starting. And remember, no matter what motor oil you're using... You'll get better and smoother motor performance when you add K-Sight. Now, back to Michael Shane. Outside the sorority house, Shane and Phyllis are waiting for a killer. There. That's Claire's room, the lighted window, third to the right. On the ground floor? Yeah. May I ask, Mr. Shane, how you knew which was her room? Or shouldn't I mention it? More research, honey. Hmm. I checked it before we left this afternoon. Now keep in the shadow of these bushes. We right. don't want anybody to spot us. How do you know Claire is going to be the one to be killed? Just a hunch, honey. Figuring it from his angle. Look. Look, her light just went out. Okay. Now look. We've got to get across that stretch of lawn without being seen. Mm -hmm. If we muff this, it may be the end of Claire. You say when. All right. Now, aim for that big bush under the first window. Yeah. Then work along the building to her window. You all set? Yes. Okay, let's go. We made it. Yeah. All right, stick him up. Huh? It's a what? cop. I got you covered. No funny business. Quiet. Officer, ah, so it was two peeping towns. Eh? Listen, officer, please. You've got us wrong. I'm the detective, Michael Shane. Oh, yeah? He left town this afternoon, buddy. But wait a minute. And you're leaving for the station right now. Michael, somebody's at Claire's window. Yes, come on. We've got to get in there. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, but officer, look. Look, a girl's going to be killed. Oh, yeah? Ain't that interesting? Oh. Okay, you ask for it. Oh. Come on, Phil. Yeah. Gone in the window. Hey, you! Come back! Now you get that cop and come running. I'm going in this window. Oh, watch out, darling, please. All right, Quincy. Up with the hands. It's dark in here, Mr. Shane. You can't see me. But she'll feel me. Ooh. Ow. Why, you 
No, you don't. You haven't got me yet, Mr. Shane. That's what you... Here. Here's a sample of my Sunday punch. All right, come on, open the door. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you in. Wait a minute. Hey, what's going on here? Come on, turn on some Yes, yeah. Here we are, officer. Oh. Oh, oh Michael, Ooh. you're hurt. Oh, brother. Did he give me a Swedish massage? And Claire. Oh, look. Holy saints. You wasn't kidding me. Another murder. No, not quite. I can feel her heartbeat. Strangled. With, with what? Tennis strings, baby. Tennis strings. Uh... Uh, well, officer, you'd better clamp the bracelets on Mr. Quincy Baldwin. Huxley's most brilliant student is coming, too. Yeah. Yeah, thanks to you, Mr. Shane. I am the most brilliant student. Arrest are sheep, fools. Seems to me you have a rather extreme way of proving the point. The girls didn't like me. I was too brilliant. The boys were jealous of my brains, even Gil. <laughs> the beeping Tom. They reacted just as I wanted them to. I started it just as a game to watch the sheep react. An experiment in psychology. Experiment in murder, you mean? Ah, it was easy. And Gil was such a fish. I helped you, Mr. Shane. I even risked my neck. There was the thrill of danger. But you didn't catch me, Mr. Shane. You just blundered onto it, you stupid man. Well, hardly, Quincy. You see, you made a couple of slips... You were the only boy that the peeping Tom picked on. And then you were so helpful to us. You didn't come directly to meet us at the clock tower. You took a few minutes out to kill Agnes. Michael, how did you know you were trying to kill Claire tonight? His ego. You remember when I asked Professor Brill who was the most popular girl? Yes. Well, that was it. Gil, the most popular boy. Claire, the most popular girl. ha. <laughs> You couldn't resist that, Quincy. <laughs> I still say you're stupid. Yeah? Well, it could be. But you'll be wearing the dunce cap, Quincy, when you sit in the gas chamber. <sighs> oh, what's that, honey? Another bill? No, my duck. Just a little check from Huxley College. It's our fee, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, by the way... Did you graduate from any other college? <laughs> of course not. Are you sure? Yes. Oh, well, that's good. Why? Well, colleges give me an inferiority complex. That stuff about thermal diffusion and <laughs> kinetic, what do you call them? <laughs> ah, that's no place for a dick. Oh, well, it's all right, Michael. I like you just the way you are. Oh, you do, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Besides, you're intelligent, and that's what counts in the long run. You wouldn't change me, hmm? Well, uh, Well, what? Well, you might take your feet off the desk. Huh? Oh, <laughs> why, certainly, Miss Isotope. Why, thank you, Mr. Isotope. <laughs> Michael Shane, Private Detective, stars Wally Mayer and Kathy Lewis. Tonight's story was written by Leonard St. Clair and directed by Michael Raffetto and based on the character created by Brett Halliday. Music was composed and played by Len Salvo. This is Charles Arlington speaking.
Attention, new car owners. A new motor is a stiff motor. For real pickup and full power, limber it up with K-Sight. Added to the crank case oil, K-Sight carries lubrication fast to all the tight spots, protects vital close tolerance areas during the break-in, and it, it keeps your motor clean. Remember this. No matter what kind of motor oil you're using, you'll get better and smoother motor performance when you add K-Sight. This program came to you from Hollywood. Stay tuned to this station for the adventures of the Falcon. It immediately follows station identification. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. I don't know if you can even unlace a football anymore, but you could during pigskin season in 1946 when that episode, The Return to Huxley, aired as part of the series Michael Shane, Private Detective. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Football figures in a different way in the Jack Benny show we're about to hear. The guest star is Tony Curtis, the gorgeous 28-year-old who was then starring in a movie called The All-American. There are the usual jokes about Mr. Benny's vanity and age. He casts himself in Mr. Curtis's role and his tightness with money. There are more fat jokes than usual about Don Wilson, the announcer, and one about Frank Remley, the hard-partying guitar player. Another foil is the show's band leader, Bob Crosby, and his brother Bing really did own the Pittsburgh Pirates. You'll hear radio references, too, to the newsman Edward R. Murrow, the soap opera John's Other Wife, and Strike It Rich, a game show that trafficked in people's tales of misfortune. From November 8, 1953, it's The Lucky Strike Show, starring Jack Benny. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Rochester, Dennis Day, Bob Crosby, the sportsman for 10 years early. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the star of our show... A man who for years has won the highest accolade of critics and public alike. Oh, Don, please. A man whose unique abilities have brought him to the pinnacle of success and whose... Oh, I can't read this stuff. <laughs> You'll read it and like it. Now, go ahead. A man whose talent is exceeded only by his modesty... Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Don, I don't see why it should be so hard for you to say a few nice things about me, but I'm happy you managed to struggle through that introduction. Well, Jack, the only reason I did was because I was afraid you'd fire me. Don, I couldn't fire you. Why not? Because this happens to be National Save Your Fat Week. <laughs> That's why. Oh, come on now, Jack. 
There hasn't been a national savior fat week since 1944. Don, Edward R. Murrow can be topical. I have to be funny. <laughs> anyway, you know what today is, don't you? Yes, yes, I do. It was exactly 20 years ago today that I agreed to go on your show. Oh, gosh. Jack, have you and Don really been together that long? We sure have, Bob. And right from the start, it was a wonderful association. No arguments, no bickering, no lawyers. That's right, Bob. He just tattooed the contract on my stomach and let it go at that. <laughs> and every year, there's been room for new clauses. <laughs> I don't... Come in. Uh, telegram for Jack Benny. <laughs> Over here, boy. Hey, it's from Dennis. Anything wrong? Let me read it. Dear Mr. Benny, I may be a little late for the show today as I have to get my shoes shined and my car washed. I'm also eloping to Niagara Falls. <laughs> Dennis, eloping to Niagara Falls? What a crazy kid. I didn't even know he had a girl. Out of a clear blue sky, Dennis elopes. Couldn't get married like everyone else with a ceremony and guests and a nice violin solo. <laughs> oh, well, if Dennis... Uh, pardon me, Mr. Benny. Oh, are you still here? Well, I hate to mention it, but when one delivers a telegram, it's customary for one to get a tip. Oh, oh, of course, yeah. How much do you usually get? Well, uh, that's up to you. I wouldn't want to influence you in any way. Well, let's see. Uh, do you mind if I use your phone a minute? No, no, go ahead. Hey, hello, Martha. Uh, this is Hyman. Hey, how's Grandma? Oh, not any better, huh? Well, what can we do? We can't afford medicine for the baby either. <laughs> but, but, Mark, if we spend that money on medicine, we won't be able to buy any food. <laughs> huh? The landlord was over? What'd he say? only going to give us two more days. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try to see what I can do, Martha. <laughs> Keep up your courage. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Control yourself. Control yourself. Here. Here, I've got a tip for you. Oh, gee, thanks, Mr. Wright. Oh, no, no. What's the matter? For a lousy time, I just wasted a routine I could have used on Strike at Rich. <laughs> That's all the change I have for a tip. Anyway, I'm doing a radio program now, so why don't you wait? Oh, hello, Mr. Benny. Dennis, what are you doing here? I thought you were eloping. Oh, that's all off. All off? What happened? Well, this morning I was about to propose to the girl, and I really saw her for the first time. You mean... She's got long, stringy hair, beady eyes, bad complexion, a mean face, and she's as big as a horse. Gee, she sounds like a mess. Yeah, boy, am I glad she turned me down. She turned you down? Oh, I don't care. I'll marry her twin sister. Oh, fine. 
You should see her twin sister. She's got a figure like Marilyn Monroe, legs like Betty Grable, hair like Rita Hayworth, and a face like Ava Gardner. Dennis, if the other girl is so ugly, how could her twin sister be so beautiful? You and Ed Murrow can be technical. I have to be funny. <laughs> Sing your song, will you? Ci va sonari, chi si suona un friscaletto, e come si suona un friscaletto, un friscaletto, tipiti tipiti ta. E comari, ci va sonari, chi si suona un saxofona, ma come si suona un saxofona, tu 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 saxofon. gentlemen, for our feature attraction tonight, we are going to do our version of Universal International's classic of the gridiron, All-American. Hey, isn't that the one where uh, Tony Curtis stars as the football hero? That's right. In fact, tonight, I'm playing his role. Oh, but Jack, Tony Curtis is so young. How can you even think of taking the part he played? Look, there's no sense in arguing because I'm going to play the Tony Curtis part and nobody can stop me. I can. Who are you? Tony Curtis. Tony, Curtis, this is a surprise. Well, Jack, I was at the studio when I heard about you doing this sketch tonight, so I thought I'd get down here as fast as I could. Oh. Jack, you really don't intend to take the part I played in the picture, do you? Well, of course I do. Well, don't you think it's a little ridiculous? Well, what's... What's so ridiculous about it? Jack, the picture happens to be all American, not early American. <laughs> Look, 
Tony, I don't understand your attitude at all. It so happens that the producer of your picture, Aaron Rosenberg, is a very good friend of mine. If you don't let me play the part, you'll have to go back to the studio and face him. I mean, how would you explain it to him? I mean, what would you tell him? Him drove me down here. <laughs> well, look, Tony, I'm going to play the part unless you have a strenuous objection. Well, I do. I think you're playing the part of a college boy is incongruous. Oh, yeah? Well, let me tell... Hey, Bob. Bob, come here a minute, will you? Yes, Jack? What, uh, what does incongruous mean? Huh? Well, I'm not sure. Oh, Ramley! Never mind! <laughs> now, <laughs> Remley, a fine fellow to ask. His dictionary consists of Scotch, bourbon, black and white, Hagen Hague. Now, look, Tony. I'll tell you what incongruous means. It means inappropriate, unbecoming, not harmonious in character, inconsonant or inconsistent. Oh. Well, I still don't understand it. The meaning of incongruous? Oh, how one twin can be so beautiful and the other one so ugly. <laughs> Dennis, we're not talking about that. Well, I don't understand incongruous either. Look, Dennis. Uh... Explain it to him, Tony. All right, I'll make it simple, Dennis. Incongruous means something that doesn't fit. Certainly, you know, something that doesn't fit. Now, Tony, you just sit down in the studio and watch me play your part. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Okay. Take it down. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you our version of that thrilling Universal International picture, All American. The saga of college life on the gridiron. Curtain. Music. This is the story of a poor boy who, because of, of his talent on the football field, was able to go to college, rise to the top, and become an All-American. My name is Nick. <laughs> Nick Bonner Krasinska Vishalikovsky. <laughs> In my first year at Mid-State University, I was the star quarterback. I'll never forget that crucial game for the championship. I caught the opening kickoff and ran it back for a touchdown. The crowd went wild. The rooting section stood up and began to cheer for me. Bonner Krasinska, Vitsilikovsky, Bonner Krasinska, Vitsilikovsky.
was then that I decided to change my name. <laughs> I changed it to Benelli. Nick Benelli. At the end of the season, I made every All-American team. My passing was praised by Codiers. My running was applauded by Look. And my deodorant won the good housekeeping seal. <laughs> but Mid-State didn't give football scholarships, so I transferred to Sheridan College. And the next fall, I found myself in the registrar's office, where the dean's secretary was filling out my entrance application. Now, let's see. Nick Benelli, Nick Benelli. Oh, here's your card. Now, tell me, what is your height? Five foot eleven. Uh, your weight... 173. The color of your eyes. Oh, they're blue, aren't they? <laughs> Bluer than the toes of a barefooted field goal kicker. <laughs> well, that's all the questions, and... Oh, just a second. You're here on a football scholarship, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. Uh, well, in that case... You will be provided with tuition, room, and board, and you'll be given $100 a month to spend. Do I have to spend it? <laughs> no. Thank you. Now, of course, you and all the other football players will have to earn that money. I understand. What will my job be? Well, in the dean's office, there is an eight-day clock. And I'm supposed to wind it? No, the fullback winds it. Your job is to see that he does. <laughs> Under the burden of this assignment, I began my first year at Sheridan. I'll never forget the day I met our famous football coach. I remember how he walked into the dressing room and said... All right, you men, I want all the linemen to go out and practice tackling. The ends brush up on pass receiving. Halfbacks will put in two hours each bucking the line. The fullbacks will spend the whole day trying to kick field goals. And you, you're playing quarter, aren't you? Yes, sir. What shall I do? Scratch my back. <laughs> this was a thrilling moment for me. At last, I had met that great coach, Itchy Day. <laughs> I stood there, scratching his back. He looked at me and yelled, Do it again! Do it again! Harder! Harder! Do it again! Do it again! Harder! Harder! <laughs> Now, wait a minute, Coach. I don't want to do this. I'm an All-American at Mid-State. Well, you're at Sheridan now, and everybody starts from scratch. <laughs> and another thing. We observe strict training here. Yes, sir. That means no parties, no dancing, and no dates with girls. And you'll take all your meals at the training table. You have to be in bed by 9, up at 6, and we practice seven days a week. But what do we do for fun here at Sheridan? On Tuesday night, you play Scrabble with naughty words. <laughs> Coach Day was a strict disciplinarian, and when it came to football, he was a perfectionist. We had a good team, but the players weren't very bright. So Coach Day had little radios installed in our helmets, so we could listen to the broadcast of the game and find out who had the ball. <laughs> One day, I tuned in the wrong station and tackled John's other wife. <laughs> After starring in three straight games, I was the toast of the campus. But I found out that Sheridan was different than Mid-State. These students were snobs. 
and my roommate, Robert Carter, was the biggest snob of all. He was always nagging me. Hey, Benelli. What is it, Robert? How many times have I told you? When you store things in the closet, keep your mothballs away from mine. <laughs> but how can you tell the difference? Mine are monograms. Well, Robert, why can't we be friends? I don't like riffraff. But, Robert, I'm so popular on the campus. All the fraternities are begging me to join. Well, mine is the richest one, and I'm sure that you won't get in. Why not? Because I'm the only member. <laughs> what? And the only reason I got in is my brother owns a college. Later, I found out his brother also owned Minute Maid Orange Shoes, Pittsburgh Pirates, and Pittsburgh. <laughs> Robert sent me straight on one thing. Benelli, you don't fit in here. If you didn't play football, nobody at Sheridan would even talk to you. Oh, yeah? They'd still like me for myself. Well, what makes you think so? I'll tell you why. Because I've got a winning personality. Muscles of steel that the fellows admire and respect. And the kind of youth and good looks that make girls swoon. That door slam wasn't Robert. It was Tony Curtis leaving the studio. <laughs> but I decided to find out if Robert was right. The next day, I turned in my uniform, and overnight, I became the most unpopular person on the campus. A few weeks later at the dance, before the big game, I sat for hours in a corner by myself. Nobody came within five feet of me. I was beginning to think good housekeeping might have been wrong. <laughs> it was then that I saw her. Hello, handsome. She was beautiful. And I had a hunch she was popular, too. She was wearing 164 fraternity pins. No dress, just fraternity. She smiled and came jingling towards me. Before I knew it, we were dancing together. What's your name? Viola Ward. I'm Nick Benelli. I know. Gee, Nick, dancing with you is different than dancing with the other college fellows. It is? Yes. They don't even know the minuet. <laughs> Gee, Viola, you're beautiful. Will you marry me? I might if you changed your mind and played football again. Oh, so that's it. Well, I wouldn't play football for anything. Not even if I kissed you like this? No. <laughs> like this? No. <laughs> or even like this? decided to play football after the first kiss, but I wasn't foolish enough to tell her. <laughs> the next day, I was sitting alone in my room, and from the stadium, I could hear the cheers of the crowd and the glee club as they sang our school song. 
was not made of stone, and the school spirit in that song got me. I rushed to the stadium and slipped into my good old uniform. The game was well into the fourth period. Sheridan was trailing by one point. As I ran out into the field, the crowd went wild. B-O-N-N-A-K-R. I changed it! I changed it! favorite play, but it was stopped cold. The opposing team had the biggest line in football. His name was Don Wilson. <laughs> Once I ran around his end and was out of bounds by ten. <laughs> Time was running out, but I kept cool. I knew our chance would come. Then with seconds left to play, I intercepted a pass. And as I weaved down the field, suddenly everything went black. I couldn't see a thing. My helmet had slipped down over my eyes. It didn't fit. In other words, it was incongruous. <laughs> I threw off my helmet and cut to the left. I paced to the right. I zigzagged. Suddenly, I thought of the old. And I found myself doing the minuet on the 20-yard line. <laughs> As I started running again, I realized there was only one man between me and the goal line. But I couldn't get by him. Then I noticed he wasn't even wearing a football uniform. And I hollered at him. Why don't you let me get by? I'm still waiting for my tip. <laughs> but I didn't give him the tip. Why should I? After all, it was Tony Curtis, and not I, who was the All-American. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank Tony Curtis, who appeared tonight through the courtesy of Universal International Pictures and will soon be seen in his latest picture, Forbidden. Good night, everybody. We're a little late. The Jack Benny program is written by Sam Perrin, Milt Josephsburg, George Balzer, John Tackerberry, Al Gordon, Al Goldman, and produced and transcribed by Hilliard Marks. This is the CBS Radio Network. Just about the briefest appearance of a guest star I can recall. A minute or two of Tony Curtis, whose movie, The All-American, was lampooned on that edition of The Lucky Strike Show starring Jack Benny during football season in 1953. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Our audio engineer is Douglas Bell. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. On air at 88.5 and WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. February brings many fabulous things. Valentine's Day, President's Day, the Academy Awards, Leap Year, and generally dreadful weather. It's also African American History Month a commemoration that was started nearly a hundred years ago, and we'll usher in our celebration of it tonight with not one, but two half-hours of a series we visit throughout the year here on the big broadcast, Richard Durham's Destination Freedom. As always, we're thankful to Sonia D. Williams, the scholar and radio producer who literally wrote the book on Mr. Durham, titled Word Warrior.
Destination Freedom is extraordinary for any number of reasons, not least because it was created by an African-American for the big NBC station in Chicago, WMAQ, and because it featured a racially integrated cast. But the episodes we're about to hear are in themselves extraordinary. Usually, though not always, Mr. Durham painted completely heroic portraits of important figures in the struggle for racial equality. But in these scripts, titled Black Hamlet, he doesn't pull many punches in lining out the character of the Haitian liberator Henri Christophe, warts and all. We're going to run these two episodes back to back, so there'll be as little interruption in the story as possible. From August 14th and 21st, 1949, station WMAQ and NBC, it's parts one and two of Black Hamlet from Destination Freedom. Destination Freedom. Destination Freedom, dramatizations of the great democratic traditions of the Negro people, is brought to you by station WMAQ as a part of the pageant of history and of America's own Destination Freedom. Out of the chaotic 18th century's grab for goods and gold and land and slaves to milk the magic out of the new land, there arose three giants from among the slaves of the Caribbean, Toussaint Louverture, Dessaline, and Henri Christophe, giants who liberated the island of Haiti and established a new state. Destination Freedom tells the story of one of these new world liberators. In a chapter entitled Black Hamlet, we bring you the first section from the life story of King Henri Christophe of Haiti. In Haiti, in the heart of the Caribbean, there's an old legend about the waves that lick the side of the mountains like hungry tongues. They say at twilight on the mountain near the northern coast that juts out from the land like a devil's fist, King Christophe walks as he walked a hundred years ago when he first climbed the cliffs upon which he built his castle and in which he destroyed himself. They say King Christoph begins to walk the lonely halls of his castle in his tomb and retraces the steps that brought him from the rock piles on the island of Granada to the high mountains of Haiti. In the darkness of his corridor, they say the dead king walks and recalls the day he watched the older slaves tramp single file, carrying stones to build a fortress. They watched idly while the overseer called out, Hurry! Hurry! Lift up the feet! Hurry! Hurry! And Farron, the plantation master, had come down to watch, and he was impatient. Overseer, can't you get him to work faster? They're slowing down. Hurry there! Move faster! Hurry! This way it'll take a year to get enough stones up the hill to build anything. I am doing the best I can, monsieur. Well, that's not good enough. Faster. If I drive them harder... There'd only be more who will fall out. Then put more slaves on the line. Every able slave's working on the rock now. You forget. You have used all the slaves you had. Ah, you're right. Now well, go on then, but drive harder. Naturally, monsieur. Hey, wait, overseer. Monsieur? I thought you said every able slave on the plantation. I did, monsieur. I've called every Oh. You're looking at the children. Oh, they just stand around watching. The, the children, monsieur, they come down to be near their folks. But we need more help on the line. Well, yes, monsieur, but we can't... Well? 
Uh, they can't lift the stones. It would be killing them for nothing. What about that tall boy there? Who's he? His uncle works on the line. He's thin, but I think there's strength in that body. <laughs> yeah, I think I've discovered another slave who's ready to earn his keep. And they say the plantation owner discovered Christoph playing and started him on his lonely walk towards the throne. They say the plantation owner eyed the gangling lad, felt his scrawny arms and back, and asked, Name? Ollie Christoph. Well, Henri, the overseer here says you're too young for the work of a mason. Uh, wouldn't you like to learn the trade? I always wanted to learn how to build, monsieur. I've asked to be taught. Well, forgive my negligence, but uh, I own so many slaves, it's impossible to give them all the proper attention. Yes, monsieur. Overseer, you can start them out now. I've got another hand for you. Test him. Oh, well, sir, if you don't mind, I would rather wait. Test him. Yes. In this trade, boy, in this work, one begins at the bottom by lifting that rock there. It belongs up the hill where we're building. Lift it. Monsieur... Would you rather exchange places with the boy overseer? Oh, no, no, of course then not. Then obey me. Well, boy? I... I'm trying to lift it, sir. I'm trying. <laughs> overseer, the boy goes about his work in a very dull manner. Suppose you give him some inspiration. Monsieur, Your whip could inspire him to straighten his back. Wait. Again. Again. Now, let him get in line behind the others. If he drops the stone, inspire him again. He stands there holding it. I knew there was some strength in that bony frame. Now move, boy. Move. He, he doesn't move, monsieur. He just stands there, staring at us, holding the stone. Give him the inspiration to move. Give it to him. Monsieur. Watch out! He's trying to swing the rock at me! Watch out! And in the initiation ceremony, the slave, who was destined one day to be king, flung the stone towards the plantation owner and struggled with the master while the whip rose and fell, rose and fell, and finally fell Christophe. He's down. I told you, monsieur, he was a wild one. He must have a hurricane wrapped in that thin body of his. He still wants me to put him on the rock pile. He won't last under the lashes. Tickle him with a whip again. Now, when he wakes, put him on the rocks and see that he carries his weight in stone. Yes, maybe you're right. Maybe he won't last. If his kind doesn't last, it'll be the best thing that could happen to the slave system. See that none of the other slaves help him carry his load. Let him carry his own cross. All right, boy, on your feet, quickly! And when the whip rose and fell, he pulled his thin frame from the ground and got into the rock pile line, and for five years melted inside the long line that moved up the hill. And if he had an inspiration at all, it was not the whip. But the sight of ships coming into the bay. One day he stopped atop the hill and looked down at the free sea, and his uncle warned him. Don't, don't stop here. The master's looking. Uh, up by the ridge if you want to rest. Uh, come on, follow me. 
And the thin boy followed, and soon they stopped near the top of the cliff and looked down. Ah, it's better up here. Much better. I see you like to look at the ships. They, they look so free. Some of them are free. Which ones are free? Where do they go? Oh, there are other islands. Jamaica, Santo Domingo, Cuba. I've been a slave on all of them. You escape here, it's worse than Cuba. And do the ships sail past Cuba? Even past Cuba, it's the same, Henri. There's America. The British colonies and the mainland. I could get there. Ah, slaves there too, son. There must be some place where there's no slave. Only free men. I don't know of any. How oh, careful the guards looking. In this United States, you say there are slaves too? Yes, but... Is the... that why so many ships sail that way? Well, yes, but for other reasons. Uh, go on, tell me. Careful. There's a war going on in that country. A war? Yes. Those French pirates you see down there, down there on the docks. I've watched them. They're waiting to get aboard that ship. You see it? Who are they? They're volunteers for this uh, war. They say it's going up in America. War? Yes. You see them down there, lining up on the dock. America's where they're going. The colonies are fighting against the British, they say. What are they fighting for? Freedom. If I should fight along beside uh, them... No danger. You'll never leave the rocks. Oh, watch it now. Heads down. If I could, would I be free? I don't know. They say some of the slaves from Santo Domingo volunteered to fight in Savannah. What'll happen when they've won freedom for the colonists, I couldn't say. I would like to find out. I'll bend your back, work. If I could get aboard one of those boats... Oh, it's down. The master's coming. The master came and saw the boy and the old slave working together and passed on. And when night came, the boy took another step on the road that led to the throne. In his tent that night, his uncle heard a stirring and called... Hurry, hurry. Where are you? Hush, uncle. I'm right here beside you. Oh, you got your clothes on. What, what, what are you doing? I wanted to tell you. I'm leaving. Oh, you're out of your head. I mean it. They've doubled the guard. You know that. Uncle, are you going with me? Where? To fight in America. You're still thinking about that? I'm going. Son, they'll have dogs after you as soon as you're out of here. Uncle. Listen, son, I've escaped a dozen times. I know when it's wise to try and when it's foolish. You can't get aboard a ship. They've got the ducks watching you. I'll it... find a way. You'll throw your life away. Why should I save it to be a slave? Come with me, Uncle. If I thought for a moment I could, I, I... I'll help you. I can swim for both of us. Never mind. I, I couldn't make it. You'd have to go up the cliff gamble and jump down into the bay. I'll take that gamble. Yes. I see you will. But over the cliff, it'll kill you. Then let it kill me. Good night, Uncle. And he eased out from under the tent and got into the Caribbean. Melted his black body into the night while the guards came down to the slave tents checking the tenants. All the way, Christophe, and Elder Christophe. Answer when you are spoken to. I'm here, monsieur. What's the matter with your nephew? Can't he answer? Henri. Where is Henri? 
Guards, get out the dogs. Get the dogs out. They got out the dogs and they picked up the boy's trail. And the shots rang out as he climbed up the mountain towards the cliff. The hounds drew closer as he came to the clearing and saw before him the dark, open span of ocean and the long leap down to the bay. He stopped, stared down into the ebony night, straining for the sight of the ship lights at anchor in the bay. And suddenly, the dogs broke through the rocks to the clearing and Christoph leaped to his destiny. <laughs> And the overseer came and saw that the cliffside was empty. Hold it, guards. Hold it, the dog. He came this way. I saw him. Yes, I saw him fall off the cliff. Good. No more than he deserves. Sure. We can tell Pharaoh that he won't even have to dig no grave. (laughs) And the hunters enjoyed their joke. And they didn't hear Christoph gasp for air as he came to the surface. Flutter for an instant and then swim off in the direction of a sloop that lay inside the bay. He pushed towards it with his arms and legs and torso and fought to keep sight of the ship's light and finally pulled himself aboard, stood panting on the deck. Your hands up, lad, if you don't want your head blown off. Oh, is this the ship? You heard what the mate said, your head's up. What are you doing sitting aboard a ship? like this. I heard you were sailing for America. Uh, you didn't hear we were taking out runways and stowaways. Back overboard with you. I heard you wanted volunteers to fight in America. I'm volunteering. Where? That sounds better. <laughs> Much better. <laughs> you hit the right ship, lad. We're taking a regiment of slaves from Santo Domingo into Savannah for the siege. They've all volunteered. They're under the Count Artung. Yeah, come along. Uh, come below and meet him. Uh, Monsieur Le Count, we've got another recruit. Ah, bien, très bien. Uh, he swam all the way out into the bay. He must be strong. Can you handle a gun? I couldn't. We'll take you. <laughs> Good. Uh, come along, lad. This way to your quarters. He was taken down into the cruise quarter of the ship and met slaves from every island in the Caribbean. And as the ship set sail for Savannah, Henri Christophe was on his first step in the long journey of freedom. And they sailed into Savannah Harbor and were baptized in cannon fire. He slashed through siege line with tall black soldiers from Martinique, grizzled buccaneers of France and lean-faced farmers of this new United States dying together with queer fraternity for the thing they wanted most, liberty. And when the cannons were quiet and the living volunteers were gathered back into the belly of the boat, the Count had a message for the slaves. Uh, Men, men, your attention. The leaders of the new state have asked me to give you the deepest thanks for the splendid valor of your attack against Savannah. You have extended the cause of liberty and independence to another section of the world. To me, they thank you. Is that all, Count? No. Uh, One minor point. I know many of you have been expecting to remain here or be returned to the islands as 
as three men. But but I must inform you that all who formerly belonged to French masters will be returned to French masters. There there, there will be troops in the fort we dock in who will see that this is carried out. Gentlemen, I, I regret this, but... But liberty is an elusive thing. And there was mutiny on the ship, and one slave named Desaline crushed the skulls of two troopers, but the boat sailed on towards Santo Domingo. In the evening, the hurricane howling inside him, Henri went below to the brig to comfort Desaline, who carried his hurricane in his fist. I see your fists are still bleeding from the fight. Pass on, thin man. Let me sit in peace. Are you from Granada? I said pass on. Are you an enemy of the slaves as well as the masters? I am the enemy of any who don't fight against slavery every day, everywhere, every time. I fought. I After fought. the Count's speech, you didn't raise a finger. I saw your mouth open and your heart sink. But you didn't take your fingers as I tried to do and throttle him this way. With your fingers, just your fingers, you crushed the pin. One day with these fingers, I'll crush the slave system too. If I could help you... Pass I... on, I say. Get to the other end of the ship. I'd like to be your friend. I want no friend. Will you go or shall I handle you as the belaying pin? Uh, uh, yes, Cape. You'd better leave Desalines to his fist and his fever. He thinks there's no one brave enough to join him in the rebellion against slavery. He broods about it. Let him alone. I'd like to join him. Why not join me? Where? They are taking me to the island of Santa Domingo. Yes. It's my home. There's rebellion ready to break out like an earthquake. Once the earth is shaken right, and there's those who can lead the slaves. Who lead? Who led the slave regiments at the British of San Domingo and Savannah? We did. When the time comes, we lead the slave army of San Domingo. Try to get ashore when we dock. Now, quietly, get on deck. And Henri remembered when the boat docked inside the harbor at San Domingo. And Henri was called into the cabin of the Count. Ah, come in. Come in, Henri. You wanted me to stay on the ship after the others left. Why? Why? Because I'd like to save your life, if possible. Very considerate. Yes. Yes, of course. Those who go on to the island go to masters. That's the only way they're allowed ashore. You, Henri, escape from another island. I'll never go back. Let me finish. I need money badly. If you let me act as your master, I'll sell you to someone in Santo Domingo, who I believe will appreciate your value. Mm -hmm. That way, you keep your life a little longer, and uh, I earn a few francs. Agreed? Have I a choice? I thought you'd see it my way. Well, Henri, pour yourself a glass of wine. We'll drink to my future as general in His Majesty's army, and to you. As a slave. As I've said, Henri, liberty is an uncertain thing. But with you, slavery, I think will be even more uncertain. Ah, merci. Vive la liberté! And 
before the night was over, a count had come into the town and knocked on the door of an innkeeper of the port. The sign reads, Clown. Close for the night. Can't you read? Can't you tell the voice of a friend, Monsieur Marco? Oh, Count, one moment, please. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but the governor's ordered us closed. I didn't yet. come to buy anything. No? As usual, I've got something to sell. Now, you know I bought the liquor imports you brought in some time ago. I'm well stocked. Now, if you please leave before the governor's men see Not you... before you see what I'm selling. Oh, where's your stock? Outside, waiting. You left it outside for the first thief to come along. No thief will touch him, Monsieur Marco. What are you selling? A slave. Oh, you're in the traffic now, too. All the world's in it. Well, pass me by. I've got all the help I need. This one's trained in masonry. It makes no difference. I can't risk having another slave around. The island's nothing but a cake of powder. Each week, France sends troops to watch for slave revolts. They expect it. No, it's a risk I cannot take. Could you risk having the governor know you've bought high-grade liquor tax-free from me? Oh, you drive a hard bargain. I need money to pay for my commission in His Majesty's Army. How much? I'd say something for my general's uniforms. Um, 4,000 livres. He'll intend to dress well for His Majesty's Army. The best. Is he sold? Sold. Good. Henri! Henri! You call me, monsieur? I want you to meet your new master, Monsieur Marco, of the wealthiest hotel in Santo Domingo. And so, Monsieur Marco, I've done my good deed for Santo Domingo. <laughs> and the boy who would one day be king stood and stared long at the innkeeper who owned him. And the innkeeper read his mind and said, The average lifespan for a slave on Santo Domingo is four years. You think of revolt, rebellion... But there has never been a successful slave revolt on this island. It's the richest colony in the New World. A nobleman who pushes his slaves to their capacity can get rich in four years and go back to Europe. Forget what you saw in America. I'll find a place for you in my stables. In the stables, he shod the horses and walked them through the crowded ports to their rich owners, and his own nostrils quivered and sucked in the strange air of the island that was a paradise for masters and an inferno for slaves. And even in the confines of the stables, he sensed the uneasiness in the air, and the horses neighed nervously at night. The visitor came in one evening while he was grooming them. Easy now, easy. One day, Henri... The only horses you'll shoe will be your own. Kay. My good friend, Kay. I've got another name. Forget the old name. What is it? You remember I said on the boat coming over, when the time comes? Well? The time is here. How do you know? Trust me, I have friends. Friends of mine are back from France. The Bastille's fallen. You must have heard of that. A man does not get to hear much in the stables. I'll be your ears outside the stables. If you'll be my eyes inside. What do you mean? Watch the masters who come to your hotel. When I return, give me their names and how many slaves they own. So I can visit their plantations and spread the word. If I can... Why are you uncertain? I... I don't know. Give me time. Time to get to know the island and the people. Time? Time is on the side of the masters, not we who want to be free. If you want to join me, help me. Keep your eyes open. 
when you see the physician, follow him. Who? Who is this? Hurry! Uh, yes, Monsieur Marco. Lord Kenton's waiting for his horse. Will you hurry? Uh, very well, Monsieur. Then I won't bother you if you're busy, my friend. <laughs> you're smart. <laughs> he works hard and doesn't like interruption. I see. If you ever need a doctor, Andre... Me? I've never been sick. Working on the anvil all day might make you sick. If so, I know a very good doctor. Yes? To Saint-Louverture. Every slave on the island calls him when there is sickness. They call him the physician. When you need him, send for him. See here. All is working. Now get out. I'll be going, monsieur. Remember the doctor, Andre. The physician... Who is this Toussaint, Monsieur Marco? Oh, a fellow who knows something of herbs and medicines. A slave on the Breda plantation. Good enough for slaves, I'd say. But uh, you won't get sick, Henri. I'll take good care of you. I'm sure you will, Monsieur. <laughs> and Henri, by the way. Yes? I don't know whether you've noticed it or not. But there's a growing restlessness over the island. Is that so? They say a group of conspirators are helping the slaves. Going around from plantation to plantation, making their contact. Oh? Hereafter, I'll transfer you to the hotel's billiard rooms. You're not likely to come in contact with any messengers there. You hear me? I hear you, monsieur. Well, you can move into your new job immediately. And the boy finished his job of grooming the horses, was dressed and taught new duties in the billiard room. And each day he racked up the nobleman's score with his stick, while the nobleman spoke of slaves and sales, of goods and gold, of ships and parties. And the boy who was destined to be king listened and watched and listened. Boy, stop daydreaming. What's my score? Oh, I'm sorry, monsieur. You've run to 16, 22 gold. 16, you say, boy? No, 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 that's my score. I don't believe so, monsieur. Well, I believe so. I believe you've slept and missed my rally. I did not do that, monsieur. You're calling me a liar? Well, I know your score. And I know a slave's place. There, you figure. And again. The butt and the stick rose and fell. Rose Speak that to me, are you? <laughs> this exercise was going on, and the Duke was finally getting tired of it, and the innkeeper came and interrupted the fun. Yeah, yeah, here now, Monsieur. Don't strike him again. <laughs> he, he called me a liar. Everyone here heard him. Well, he's unconscious. He's lucky to be alive. Teach your slaves better manners, Marco, you understand? Well, I'll teach him. If he lives. Oh, he's not too sick. His eyes are still open. Call your doctor. No. You see, he's still conscious. <laughs> Nothing wrong at all. <laughs> Nothing wrong. And the noblemen went back to their game, minus their scorekeeper. And the innkeeper brought in the physician, the doctor of the slaves. You, Henri Christophe. Who is that that knows my name? Who are you? I'm the one they call the physician. I'm well. There's nothing a physician can do for me. You have a sickness that's peculiar to the slave system, my friend. Yes? I've diagnosed your case. And I feel I have the cure. What... What do you prescribe? Freedom. Freedom? Speak under your breath. Not above it. When do I get the prescription? When you are ready to take it. It's a strong medicine. When do you deliver? When you hear the roll the drums from the mountains. 
It will be time to find your weapons. Join the physician and drink your prescription. It will be a long and bitter draft. You may die before you finish it. Are they? Are they? Oh, doctor. Is he any better? I believe he soon will be, monsieur. Good. How long will it take? Oh, not very long now, monsieur. I think Henri Christophe has passed through the critical stages of his illness. Soon he'll get upon his feet and walk. And no man in Santo Domingo shall walk above him. And the boy who was destined to be king listened long for the drum beats from the mountain. And they came and they rolled him into a kingdom. And to his death. And they say that at twilight, King Christoph still walks the ramparts, retraces the steps he took to the throne, searches for the step that was fatal, and the mistake that led to the grave. They say in the lonely citadel, King Christoph still retraces his steps. You have just heard Destination Freedom's dramatization of part one of Black Hamlet, the story of King Henri Christophe of Haiti. Destination Freedom is written by Richard Durham, produced by Homer Heck and directed by Dick Loughran. The role of Henri Christophe was played by Oscar Brown, Jr. The narrator was Tony Parrish. Others in the cast were George Kluge, Fred Pinker, Russ Reed, and Dean Olmquist. Special music was composed by Emil Soderstrom and was played by Helen Westbrook and Jose Bethencourt. Our technician was Al Johnson. Sound effects by Cliff Mueller. This is Charles Chan inviting you to be with us again next week when Destination Freedom will present the second and final chapter of Black Hamlet, the story of Henri Christophe, liberator of Haiti. Destination Freedom, dramatizations of the great democratic traditions of the Negro people, is brought to you by station WMAQ as a part of the pageant of history and of America's own Destination Freedom. Among the nations of the Western Hemisphere, the first to end the barbaric system of slavery was the Caribbean colony of Haiti. Among the slave leaders whose militant rebellion helped bring about the change, one stands apart. We tell his story in the second and final chapter of Black Hamlet, the story of King Henri Christophe of Santo Domingo. They say in Haiti, atop the tall mountain, 3,000 feet above the sea, the ghost of King Henri Christophe walks again in the lonely halls of his citadel, like a distraught Hamlet, retracing the steps that took him from the stables of Santo Domingo to the top of the mountains as king, retracing his steps to find which mistake brought him death, which step in the long climb to the kingdom was unwise, miscalculated, misjudged. 
And, O oh King, do you remember the steps you took from your garret room in the hotel stable to the gaudy rich billiard rooms where a nobleman struck you and where the innkeeper called Toussaint the slave doctor? And thereafter his prescription kept echoing in your mind? Andre, for slaves I prescribe only one medicine, freedom. When you hear drums roll in the mountains, join the rebellion. Keep to your room. We'll come for you when we are ready. We'll come for you when we are ready. And, O oh King, you kept to your garret behind the stables, while in the valleys and on every plantation the elements of the rebellion were collecting underground like a huge hurricane. You kept contact with Toussaint, the leader, and at night listened for the drums from the mountains, for the knock on your garret door. And the knock came that chilled your hot blood. Was this the revolution? Open in the name of the governor! Open! Or had you been discovered? Gamekeeper! Is this Henry Christophe? Yes, Captain, but he was in his room all night. He had nothing to do with last night's uprising. His name was given to us as a slave who could profit from this morning's lesson. Lesson? The rebel leaders we caught last night will be executed in the town square. The governor's declared a holiday. It's a sight for every slave. Henry, step outside. <laughs> Step into the line with other slaves and marched through the village as the captain stopped at the carcel and picked up Toussaint, Desalines, and a dozen others. And the captain said to the custodian, Is this the slave named Desalines? Yes, but he's harmless, Captain. He's no rebel. Toussaint, since you're the senior slave, you take the front rank. Your old eyes will have no excuse for not learning your lesson. March! King, you recall the step you took behind the small, dirty body of Toussaint. As you marched towards the open marketplace where crowds of planters, noblemen, and their ladies waited for the show, hysterical at the rumors of slave rebellion, and where a masked executioner grimly stood by a scaffold in a rack, and the captain said, Boy, halt! Stand here! In the name of the governor of Santo Domingo, two slaves, Cape and Cardo, having conspired to overthrow the government by force and violence, shall be sentenced to have arms, legs, and spines broken in the rack with their faces towards heaven in the name of justice, and so that all slaves might know the penalty for insurrection. <laughs> scaffold and saw the executioner lace Cardo and Cape to the rack and carry out his orders to the letter. <laughs> and you kept your eyes on them until the holiday crowd pulled themselves from the square and the sun set on the spikes wearing the heads of Cape and Cardo. And the captain snapped. Now go home to your masters and remember the execution you've watched today might have been your own. 
And you waited until the captain was gone. And Desalines said, If I had the ribs of the slave who told them to bring me into the square to see this, I'd crack them. <laughs> I'm not so strong as you, Desalines. All I have at home is one ancient pistol with one bullet. But I'd hunt up the informer. My friends, you can stop your search. But, uh, what? I told them to bring you both to the square. You, you did that? You. Easy now. The guards still look this way. Why did you tell them? As a doctor, I prescribe what sick men need. You caused them to bring me here? To see if you could watch without a change of face or of heart. What are you talking about? Those who watch and still are ready to try rebellion shall be among the leaders. You, Christoph Dessalin, do you want freedom enough to try for it? Even knowing that tomorrow you may cause another governor's holiday. I'll follow any slave who strikes for freedom. I'm with the rebels, no matter what. Good. Freedom won't be won overnight. There'll be years of organizing, training, years of small victories and no victories. Indecision among our own forces, spies and traitors. But the thirst for liberty is unquenchable. This morning's exhibition by the masters seals their doom and confirms our destination. Freedom. And, O King, you returned to the inn and recorded the planter's anxiety and suspicions. You waited year after year while the slave hurricane was collecting. You met a slim, dark girl to whom you whispered your destiny. When the drums roll in the mountain, Tuthar and his leaders will come for me. Do you understand, Maria? I understand very well. And where will I be when they come for you? Beside me, as my wife, always. And you took Maria as your wife. Soon the drums began to roll over the mountain. Inside your room, you waited for a visit from the rebels. Or again, from the captain. Fearfully, you reached for your pistol and were ready to put it to your own head. Oh, Open the door, Maria. There, there. You see, it's Toussaint. Yeah. Toussaint. Waiting is over. Andre, we've taken this section of the island. Oh, I, I didn't even know you were in the hotel. We move quietly. This is an outpost now. Now it's time to use some of the military art you and Desaline learned in the American Revolution. Hey, Desaline. Yeah, I'm ready. Desaline is my second in command. He will command the forces in the northern section. Christoph, as we planned. Yes. I shall command the people under me with discipline and with kindness. Oh, no. Huh? In my army, it is you whom the people will command, not you who will command the people. I... I understand. Then understand this. On this island, we have empire armies of the English... French and Spanish, all waiting to subdue the slaves and reap the profit from their work. So, we will burn their plantations, 
set flames to their crops. Retreat and reassemble and strike and build and build until peace is secure. And the land is in the hands of those who cultivate it, the slaves. We shall have freedom from tyrants. And you accepted your responsibility with courage, O king. With your section of the slave army, you set fire to plantation warehouses. And on the embattled island, the whole horizon was a sheet of fire. Great orange tongues reached above the earth and lapped at the stars. Flames climbed against the wall of night as if the vines of slavery reached into planters' homes and into barracks of troops sent to subdue your army. And with Dessaline and Toussaint, the ragged slave regiments broke the backs of the Spanish troops, the English troops, and finally Napoleon troops. And when a beaten French general asked for a conference, you and Dessaline came down from the mountains to confer with Napoleon's general. At night, when you went to your home, you were restless. You tried to sleep, but thought of that morning in the marketplace. You were standing before the executioner, and all around you the planters were jeering and shouting and knocking on the guillotine for your head. Suddenly you realized the knocking came from your door and not the guillotine. And you leaped from your bed and reached for your pistol and a single bullet before you called out, Oh! Oh, there! Oh, Christo! What do you want? Oh, you're too fast, orderly. Uh, where's your man? He's captured. Huh? He's, he's been... He's been... Out with it. By whom? The French. You're a lie. There's a truth on. I, I was with him when soldiers surrounded him. I got away, but they got... But you gathered your men that night and set fire to the port and retreated with Desaline to the hills, regrouped and fought until you stood with Desaline atop this mighty mountain and looked down into the sea and saw the last of the French fleet creeping away. Santo Domingo was free. Now that we have driven the Empire Hunters into the ocean, Henri, we shall reconstruct Santo Domingo in the image of a state free from tyrants and profiteers. And according to the wishes of Toussaint, I shall assume command. Did you say something, General Christophe? I, um, I thought that in accordance with the Constitution... There shall be an election. Does anyone doubt that there's a need for a governor general? Good. I shall accept this position which has been tendered me. Meanwhile, General Christoph will be my second in command. You will immediately take steps to restore the northern section of Haiti. There will be other steps to be taken later, which I will inform you of as soon as practicable. And you took the steps and hid your ambition from all but Maria, who watched you pace the floor night after night as the years of slow reconstruction went on. You're uh, still dissatisfied with the way Dessaline runs the country, aren't you, Henri? He's becoming a tyrant. Even his own troops hate him. And besides, he keeps you to the northern provinces only. It's not that that I mind, but there's so much that could be done. So much in so little time. And Dessaline is in the way. I wouldn't put it that way. It's just that Dessaline assumes titles. Now he calls himself Emperor. What a fool. Set himself up as an emperor before people who've learned to hate the sound of the title. Would you do better? Of course. They've given him too much power. What power the people give, Henri, the people can take away. 
And, O oh king, you tried to sleep. But again there was the awful dream of the marketplace and the executioner. And dawn again found you pacing the floor. And someone, perhaps an agent of Dessalines, was hammering on the door. Had he become aware of your ambition? Had he sent an executioner? You picked up your pistol before you threw open the door. What do you want? I have a message for you from the minister. Give it to me. You snatched the letter, and it spoke of your inner thoughts. Dear General Christophe, a terrible thing has occurred in the province of Sanssouci. Our Emperor Dessalines was set upon by traitors among his own troops and assassinated. We ask you to come immediately to a public conference in the capital. The ministers of His Majesty's cabinet have gathered to petition you to accept the position of chief executive of the state. And, O oh King, you stood there while soldiers and farmers, men and women, cheered that you had an eerie sense of your own destiny. A slow flow of power filled your veins. You made a three-hour climb up the highest mountain to survey your domain. When you reached the top, you ordered your chief engineer to build the mightiest castle fortress in the world. When your minister of finance declared there was no currency, you said... The peasants grow and drink coffee? Yes, coffee is important to them. Coffee is important to the world. We will tax each person, say, 20 pounds of coffee each year. They will then bring their coffee to the treasury. Why, why, yes. We can trade coffee to England in return for gold. With gold, we begin our currency. Then I will have my castle. You will take steps accordingly. And you thought of declaring yourself king only to hasten progress. Your ministers agreed, and your troops were still loyal. But Maria, who watched your restless pacing at night, was concerned. You're walking in the footsteps of Dessalines. Don't compare me with Dessalines. This is just a temporary measure. Good people have nothing to fear with me as king. <laughs> And you hold firm and watched how the foreign powers eyed the progress of your state. And to forestall their aggression, you invited their military chiefs to inspect your army. Your minister of war gave his opinion. That would be suicide. They only want to gauge our strength. And since our army is so limited... Our army can... is limited. But our ideas are not. What do you mean? Invite the attaches of every country that covets our trade, our land. And stage a parade of all our armed forces. What? Do we have only a I few... shall supervise that parade, personally. Very well, Your Highness. And you invited the military chiefs of three countries, and you sat with them as they watched your soldiers parade by the palace. It is a very colorful armor you have, King Christoph, even though perhaps he's small, eh? Ah, Excellency, they do march well. I must revolt. I say, are these the main body of troops we're seeing now, Your Highness? Oh, gentlemen, the main body is the infantry, and they're at the end of the parade. Sit back. Be comfortable. And by late afternoon, the troops were still passing, and your guests' eyes began to widen. By Jove, I say, Your Highness, 
does everyone in Haiti belong to the army? Oh, no, no. You see just a small part of our people represented in the army. Would you gentlemen like to have dinner out here? The soldiers haven't half finished with the parade. And when twilight fell, the soldiers still came, new regiment after regiment. The guests looked fearfully at each other and crept away to report on your unusual army. But you did not tell them that they had seen only a handful of troops trained to change quickly into different uniforms and to pass the platform again and again. But still, O oh King, you did not feel secure. You tightened the discipline of your army and gained more power, and perhaps you became intolerant in your impatience, for you slept less to avoid the recurring dream of the executioner in the marketplace and paced the floor again nightly as Maria called you. Tyrant. Maria. Despot. That's what the people are calling you. Oh, people. Can't at least you understand what I'm trying to do? To build a nation with iron discipline. Dessaline's discipline? Uh, Dessaline's troops lost admiration for him. Lost confidence in him. But mine yes. was... The people are losing confidence in you. As long as the troops hold out, the people will stay in line. I will take steps to see to that. And you took firm steps to secure your control. You consulted less with your ministers and more with your own ambition until the time came when you could not afford to allow the slightest infraction of discipline. As that sunny morning when you stood high in your mountain castle swept the valleys below with your telescope and noticed a workman sleeping. Captain! Your Highness? Look through this glass. You see that mason sleeping instead of working on the docks? Why, yes, I see him. Shall I send down an orderly, sir? No, 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 no. I've warned him once that the docks must be built quickly. I'll send down my own orderly. Your Highness? He raised that cannon so I can sight it. Your Highness? Higher... Now, a little to the left. There. Now, light the fuse. Your Highness. I have a friend. I'll do it. Your Highness, please. And your aim was true. It demolished the sleeper. Was that the first wrong step? Was it that? Or could it have been your ignoring the court doctor's warning? Your Highness, I... I've got to report. Then report and start gibbering. <laughs> Unless you rest and give up state duties, your your blood pressure, your, your constitution, uh, conditions might lead to an... Uh, I'm afraid, sir. I am not. Get out of my sight. But you were afraid as you toured your kingdom ahead of your troops and pushed your plans faster and harder and put down rebellion and radicals with an iron fist and walked the floor nightly. Again one night, the dream of the marketplace came back. The executioner's mask dropped and you almost saw his face. You jumped from your bed with fear and trembling and a knock at your door. You reached again for the pistol before you threw it open. What do you want? It was your war minister. Your Highness, the provinces in the south are in a boat. No. No, I don't believe it. You're lying. I called out the troops, but they're unwilling to follow me. They'll follow me. Get my horse ready. I'll let the guards. 
We'll put them down as the dogs they are. We'll teach them to respect authority. I will not tolerate rebellion. Johannes! And it was then that thunder struck you, O king. Then rage and fury and frustration and fear split your nerves. When it rolled away, you were lying on your back inside the castle. You faintly could hear the doctor. He's opening his eyes. He's regaining consciousness now. Now, madam, I, I think your husband can speak to us. Oh, how long have I been here? Don't worry. Lie back on me. No, no. Get me up. I've got to stop the rebellion. Shall, shall I tell him, doctor? Tell me what? Your Highness, you've been in bed a week. The rebels have taken over the valley. Taken it? What have my troops been doing? Well, I'm unfamiliar with military matters, but I... Your, your troops, sire, have been waiting to see whether you... Sire, you have had a stroke. I warned you. Stroke? Oh. Your legs and thighs are paralyzed. <laughs> You recall the way your hands dug into your legs to awaken them. But week after week as you lay there and you watched through the windows and saw your troops waiting for either the rebels or you to come and lead them. One evening you called. Minister! Minister! Your Highness. Tell the groom to bring out my horse. Tell my troops I'm coming down to lead them. But, oh, what you, oh, don't, don't help. You will all do as I say. But, Your Highness, you can't walk. I told you, you can't walk. I'm going to lead my men. They won't follow you. They will if they see I still have my strength. I am not paralyzed. And I can walk to my horse, mount it, and ride down the mountain. They'll follow. If I leave. And was this the right step, O King? Pulling yourself into your uniform and standing erect? although pain preyed on every part of your body. Standing erect and taking a step. And another. And another. And you took the fierce steps down through the corridors and out on the parade ground where your horse stood saddled and waiting. And all around the officers and troops stood ready and waiting and watching to see if you still had power to command. Through the pain that burned your nerves and punished your heart, you reached the horse and heard them cheer. And heard them grow quiet as you took the last stride to your horse. And every fiber and tissue and cell in your body was crying with pain. You again and again commanded your body to make one last move. Grip the reins of the horse. Commanded your arms to pull. Pull. Your head began to spin slowly, then faster. Somewhere far away, you heard the thunder roll. Or your fingers slipped from the saddle and your body dropped into the mud. And the thunder rolled again. You were again enveloped in the darkness. In the empty darkness with only the tortured dream of the marketplace. The executioner standing over you. And you worried now that in your dreams you could see the executioner's face. His mask had fallen and he was not a white planter but a black peasant. 
And when the cloud rolled away, your eyes opened. You were alone in the citadel with Maria. How... How long have I been lying here this time? Only a few hours. Well, where? Where is everyone? My ministers, doctors, the troops. With the rebels. Can't and why can't they, your highness? Ungrateful dog. Didn't I build them a state, a nation? Didn't I save them from aggressors? Didn't I free them? You freed them. It was they who freed you. Have they forgotten what I did for them? What you did for them. If you had not done for them what they did for you, you would not be here now, waiting your execution. I... I must have made a mistake. Somewhere I made a mistake. But where? Where? Oh. Holy. My holy. Who is that, Maria? Come for you. Maria, hand me the pistol. What are you doing? Hand me the pistol. And again, you commanded your sick body and made it stand upright. And with superhuman strength, moved to the window and there saw your island empire crumble beneath you. The rebels, peasants rising against you and suddenly... Somehow you remembered your mistake. You saw that what the people give, they can take away. You raised the pistol to your brow. And they say, here in this citadel, 3,000 feet above the sea, King Christoph walks at dawn when the mist comes up from the sea and breaks against the ramparts of the castle and moves it like clouds. just heard part two of Destination Freedom's dramatization of Black Hamlet, the story of King Henri Christophe of Haiti. Destination Freedom is written by Richard Durham, produced by Homer Heck, and directed by Dick Loughran. The role of Henri Christophe was played by Oscar Brown, Jr., the narrator was Tony Parrish. Others in the cast were Fred Pinkard, Dean Olmquist, Weslyn Tilden, George Kluge, and Than Gordon. Special music was composed by Emil Soderstrom and was played by Elwin Owen and Roy Graham. Our technician was Al Johnson. Sound effects by Cliff Mueller. This is Charles Chan inviting you to be with us again next week when Destination Freedom presents Segregation Incorporated. A special report of the National Committee on Segregation in the nation's capital. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Richard Durham's Destination Freedom and the two-part story, Black Hamlet, from the summer of 1949. It brings us to the end of the big broadcast tonight... 
For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you as friend of friend. I'm sorry it's true. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too. Let's make a date for next Sunday night. I'm here to stay. Twill be my delight. To sing again, bring again the things you want me to. I love to spend each Sunday with you. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm David Green here. I'm standing on a street corner in southern Iowa because after a seemingly endless build-up, the 2020 presidential campaign is going to get started with the Iowa caucuses and Morning Edition has been crisscrossing this state talking to voters. You'll hear what they have to say as we broadcast in front of a live audience at a cafe in Des Moines. It's the Iowa caucus, Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen tomorrow morning from 5 to 9 on WAMU 88.5. 